0: Optimal,
1: minimal.
2: At this altitude, I can run flat out for a half mile before my hands start shaking. Can I ask you a personal question?
1: Now it is in the perfect time. What if I did the opposite?
3: I'm a cybernetic organism, living tissue over a metal endoskeleton.
2: This episode is brought to you by Athletic Greens. I always have them in my bag when I'm zipping around. Right now, Athletic Greens is giving my audience a special offer on top of their all-in-one formula, which is a free vitamin D supplement and five free travel packs with your first subscription purchase. Many of us are deficient in vitamin D. I I've found that true for myself, which is usually produced in our bodies from sun exposure. So adding a vitamin D supplement to your daily routine is a great option for additional immune support. Support your immunity, gut health, Hello boys and girls, this is Tim Ferriss and welcome to another episode of The Tim Ferriss Show, where it is my job to deconstruct world-class performers, to tease out the habits, routines, belief systems, etc. that you can apply to your own lives. And this episode was extremely fun. It took place in the middle of nowhere effectively, on Easter Island, very hard place to get to. And you could think of it in a sense as my life extension pilgrimage for a whole host of reasons. And I was surrounded by three incredibly brilliant people, and I'm going to describe each in turn. The first is Navdeep Goes by Nav. Navdeep Shandel, PhD. I'm going to butcher some pronunciation here because I don't know how to read some of these words, but he's a David W. Cudgel, I believe, C U G E L L, professor of medicine and cell biology within the Feinberg School of Medicine at Northwestern University. Nav is extremely good at questioning assumptions, testing assumptions, as are the other people I'm going to mention. And I'm just going to give you one example. Many of you listening probably take antioxidants. And here is a description of interests on Nav's faculty profile. And I'm going to blaze through this, but I do think it's really, really fascinating and kind of opens the door to discussions that many people are not having. Here we go. Historically, reactive oxygen species, ROS, have been thought to be cellular damaging agents, lacking a physiological function. This is why many of us, this is Tim's voice now, take antioxidants, right? We want to snuff out these reactive oxygen species. Back to Nov. Accumulation of ROS and oxidative damage have been linked to multiple pathologies, including neurodegenerative diseases, diabetes, cancer, and premature aging. This guilt-by-association relationship left a picture of ROS as a necessary evil of oxidative metabolism, a product of an imperfect system. Yet, few biological systems possess such flagrant imperfections thanks to the persistent optimization of evolution. And it appears that oxidative metabolism is no different. More and more evidence suggests that low levels of ROS are critical for healthy cellular function. And in his lab, he says, we are testing whether mitochondrial release of H2O2, that's hydrogen peroxide has evolved as a method of communication between mitochondrial function and other cellular processes to maintain homeostasis, example given, stem cell function and immune responses, and promote adaptation to stress, example given, hypoxia. So this is uh, very much a counter view to what you would find in media. And for that reason, and many, many others, I enjoyed hanging out with Nav. Now, his partner in crime comes up next. And his partner in crime, one of his best friends, is David Sabatini, MD, PhD. You can find him on Twitter at DM Sabatini, S A B A T I N I. He's a member of the Whitehead Institute for Biomedical Research, investigator at the Howard Hughes Medical Institute, professor of biology at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, otherwise known as MIT, and a senior associate member at the Broad Institute. David is on, uh, you could think of it as a shortlist for the Nobel Prize, at least according to Reuters, for his work in elucidating the role of rapamycin and something called mTOR, which we're going to talk a lot About. And for those of you out there who have thought a lot about life extension and looked for silver bullets, you've probably come across metformin and rapamycin. Well, in these two gents, Nov and David, you have respectively two of the world's foremost experts in how, say, metformin and rapamycin function. Next up, we have one of my faves. He's been on the podcast at least twice before, Peter Tia, MD. You can find him on Twitter at Peter Attia, M-D-A-T-T-I-A, eatingacademy.com. He is a former ultra-endurance athlete, swimming races at 25 miles and crazy stuff like that, compulsive self-experimenter like yours truly, and one of the most fascinating human beings that I know. He makes my OCD look like a light case. (laughs) He is also one of my go-to doctors for anything performance or longevity related. Peter earned his MD from Stanford and holds a Bachelor of Science in Mechanical Engineering and Applied Mathematics from Queen's University in Kingston, Ontario. Did his residency in general surgery at Johns Hopkins and conducted research at the National Cancer Institute under Dr. Steven Rosenberg, where... Peter focused on the role of regulatory T-cells in cancer regression and other immune-based therapies for cancer. And we get into a lot in this uh, wine-infused jam session on Easter Island, and I try to guide it best I can. I had a fair amount of wine, as did one or two others, perhaps, in the group. We discuss antioxidants, their role or lack thereof. Uh, We get into all sorts of serious stuff, we also talk about, uh, and might even have an impersonation of Borat, talk about what is ass-crack voting exactly, how to staple, that's courtesy of Peter Tia fonts, and a supplement that many of you have asked about, which is Basis, and I believe the company is called Elysium. So, there you have it, folks. Sorry for the long intro, but I felt the context would be important. These guys are absolutely brilliant and I was playing catch up the entire trip, but that is how you grow. You got to be the weakest person in the room sometime. All right. I hope you guys enjoy this as much as I enjoyed recording it. Thanks for listening. All right, folks, here we are on Easter Island, Isla de Pascua, of all places. And we have a number of folks here, one doing something obscene with his hands. I'm not going to mention who... (laughs) And we're going to start with some introductions. We have one known character, two new faces. Nav, would you mind introducing your friend, David?
0: Well, Tim, uh, I want to thank you for inviting me to your wonderful podcast in this lovely, magical place called Easter Island. I'm here with my good friend, David Sabatini, who's a professor at Massachusetts Institution of Technology. Known Institute? Institute? What did I say? Institution? Whatever it is. MIT. Not not in the same (laughs) asylum. (laughs) What can I tell you? That's what friends do. They correct each other all the time. In his case, he just corrects me. Anyways, um, David is a professor at MIT, and uh, David uh, made a remarkable discovery about 20 years ago. She hasn't discovered anything after that, but it was remarkable 20 years ago. And that was on a serious note, uh, which was uh, he figured out uh, what's called a protein called mTOR, mechanistic target of rapamycin. Rapamycin, and we'll get in a lot into this, uh, was actually found in Easter Island. And uh, for David, this is kind of like a pilgrimage to, um, um, you know, sort of pay homage and other things to, uh, you know, this great little molecule called rapamycin. And obviously, we're going to talk a lot about what all these magical things rapamycin could possibly do fantastic
2: and just so you guys realize uh since uh, it may not be obvious at first listen uh, these two have known each other for a very very long time so the way that Peter and I bust each other's balls uh you you may hear occasional busting of balls between these two david
4: sure so thanks tim i just want to thank you and also peter for uh, peter actually was the the person who uh, Took an incipient idea and had this actually happen for us to all be here. So, Navdeep Chandal, I've known him, I don't know, probably maybe 10, 15 years, somewhere in that range. Uh, he's a professor at Northwestern in Chicago. He is, I think, my best friend in science. Uh, he has worked in an area biology, actually he started working in area biology that frankly a lot of people were not that interested in for a long time. And these are these things called mitochondria inside our cells, and sometimes, probably people have heard of them as the powerhouses of the cell because they make a molecule called ATP, which is an energy molecule. And NAV, I think it's safe to say, was the first person who realized that these really important compartments in the cell did a lot of other things, and this idea that they're so-called signaling organelles really initiated with NAV. These are now very popular things to study, and NAV was there at the beginning. Uh, to do that. He's also one of the most charming people in science. He is friends with everyone. He's the social butterfly of all meetings.
2: And really, a meeting without Nav is no fun. Strikes an incredible resemblance to a Bollywood star. Oh, I, thought you were, I
0: thought you were going to say Julie from The Love Boat, you know, the cruise director, <laughs> as he just sort of pointed out. That's but, true. you know, nah. I'll take the Bollywood star.
4: Yeah, the, the ones that don't get the girls.
5: Usually,
2: right. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, Peter, how did you come to know these two guys?
3: So, I've known David for uh, a few years. We actually met. Um, I don't actually remember who introduced us, but uh, kind of took an interest in trying to better understand how inhibition of this thing that Nav alluded to, mTOR, uh, could be valuable in the treatment of cancer, and about a year and a half ago, we were having dinner, and he mentioned that one of the things he always wanted to do was have a meeting on Easter Island um, to commemorate the 20th anniversary of the uh, elucidation of how rapamycin works. So I guess, as you know, Nav alluded to, we'll talk a little bit about that or maybe a lot about that. And so this idea kind of seemed amazing to me because I thought the story of rapamycin's discovery, which I'm sure we'll get told at some point this evening, was about one of the most interesting stories in science, not just from the standpoint of the expedition, um, the isolation of the molecule or identification of it, but also how close it came to never happening. Um, and then to the story of how its mechanism of action was identified independently by different groups and you know the story of how David did it uh, at such a young age is kind of amazing to me. So David and I kind of crafted this idea about a year ago which was we'd come to Easter Island to scope it out to basically see first and foremost where Rapa was discovered but also to figure out if there was a way to have a conference here. That idea quickly took hold and then i think i just talked you into it and that took about i don't know 10 to 11 seconds and i think david similarly talked nav into it and that's that took
0: 11 minutes
3: 11 minutes yeah so that's what got us here you want to share a room
0: with me
4: and i I made (laughs) sure that did not
2: happen (laughs) once i disabused him of that so peter you've you've told me before and I kind of ask you to retell it like a bedtime story because I like it so much. And of course everybody can jump in at any point, but the lore of and connection between where we are, Easter Island, otherwise known as Rapa Nui and Rapa Yeah. So in
3: 1964, an expedition from McGill university uh, set out, um, they, I believe arrived on the island Uh, in early December of 64. And they spent, what, probably half a year here?
0: Dude, you just watched a movie about it last night.
3: Yeah, YouTube wasn't working. It took like an hour to get through the first four minutes of the documentary. I think I know less now than I did before we tried to watch it. Um, Rapa Rapa Nui is great for many things. Connectivity is not one of them. Um, So uh, this group returned to McGill University, and by about 1972, I believe, the soil that contained a streptomyces, uh, which one was it, David? Streptomyces hydro... hydropicus. Hydropocis, yeah. Um, they had collected near a volcano here. That's right. Which we saw the first day we got here, which was mind-boggling. Um, this made its way into the hand of a chemist named Serene Sengal, who... Sengal. Sigal, who was at a biotech company that is no longer in existence The uh, Bollywood stars. No, it, it was based yeah. at a pharma company called Irest. Yeah, Irest. that was had offices around the country, but he was in the Montreal office. He spent, I think, the next three years purifying the compound, uh, the active compound within this, which he named Rapamycin. Rapa, obviously paying respect to the island on which it was discovered. Mycin being uh, sort of the thing we'd add to the name of something that was uh, an antimicrobial agent. Um, what was the lore among the locals or the purported background
2: of this volcano?
3: So the word on the street, which was reiterated to us this week, was that... More any, than once, actually, right? Yeah. Independent yeah. Any that. Anytime natives were sick... The, the, the local, the Rapa Nui, they would go and spend an evening in the marsh area of the volcano and it would seem to rid them of all their ales. Um, now, in truth, it's not clear to me that that's why they were prospecting there. I think they were looking for biodiversity, but it certainly makes for a great story. So um, the story gets interesting back in Montreal when, and I, this happened sometime between 1975 and 1980, I don't know the exact details, but this company went through a series of layoffs. The majority of the people in Montreal were basically released. Uh, Seren was one of the few who was not. He was transferred to the New Jersey office. However, he was ordered to destroy all non-viable compounds, of which rapamycin was one. Now, he'd already figured out something pretty remarkable about rapamycin, which is it was a potent inhibitor of yeast. Um, As the story goes, he believed this was gonna be a game-changing drug for athlete's foot. Um, I don't think at the time, David, they really understood its full anti-proliferative effects, did they? No, but it was pretty early. They started seeing things in human cells too, right? In in, in immune cells. Mm -hmm. So, Seren and his son, Ajay, who was actually supposed to be on this trip with us, uh, so it's super sad that he had a work commitment and he couldn't make it here, they actually packaged up the rapamycin into little dry ice containers and manually like, wouldn't even let the movers do it. They were the ones that physically brought it to New Jersey where it sat in their freezer for almost a decade. It wasn't until Wyeth bought this company in 84 or 85 that Seren approached his new bosses and said, hey, I've had this compound I was working on a decade ago. Do you mind if I get back to it? To which they said, knock yourself out. And that really began the new birth of rapamycin, which, as David said, really went on to show these remarkable anti proliferative properties, and in particular, was really potent against the type of immune cell called T-cells, which is what ultimately led to its FDA approval in 99 for the treatment of uh, kidney rejection. But it had been so long since rapamycin was discovered, actually, the patent on the chemical
4: entity, which is the most valuable kind of patent you can have, had expired at that point. So it was really a use patent that they could get and, and, and people would criticize why. that how could it possibly have taken... I forget what patents were like 17 years at that point. So it was an incredibly long story to, to get clinical utility. How did you connect with rapamycin? Yeah, so that's a bit, of, um, a bit of a long-winded, maybe complicated story. So I was a student at Johns Hopkins and I was an MD-PhD student and I went into the lab of probably one of the most prominent scientists at Hopkins, a man who's, who's, who's still well, his name is Solomon Snyder. And Saul is a, like a real character in science. He was a psychiatrist, a neuroscientist, pharmacologist. And when I got to that lab, it it was, um, it was an interesting lab because he, he gave you, or at least he gave me a lot of freedom. So basically let me do whatever I wanted to do. And so that was, Great, but at the same time, very nerve-wracking.
2: How did you choose his lab? Why did you want to go to his lab? It was pretty simple. It was a lab that lots
4: of other students like me, I, I was an MD-PhD student, so a joint student. Lots of students went. Um, it had a reputation of having lots of smart people uh, in it. And I also think that, that, that it had a reputation for people getting out of that lab fairly quickly. I mean, it was sort of a work hard, play hard type of, of lab. So mostly it was my friends were there which, as I tell a lot of my students, it's important to have a social environment in the lab. Um, but I was, I was, I I tried a lot of things in that lab that didn't work, and, and one day I realized that they were working with this other drug called FK506, which Peter and Nav know pretty well, has some structural similarity to rapamycin. And the reason they were using it is they were just using it as a control.
2: They were using yeah. rapamycin as the control. As a control, exactly.
4: So they were working with this other FK506, which is also an immunosuppressant. They were doing these things in neurons, but they needed a control. And they're sort of using a related drug, which is a fairly typical thing to do. And I realized two things. One is that we had rapamycin, which at the time you couldn't buy. And I'll tell you how we had rapamycin. And and two, that from what I read about it, it was at least as interesting and probably a lot more interesting than FK 506, and we didn't know how it worked. And the reason we had it is, and this goes back to the story Peter told, is that Saul was a very prominent person. And so when he saw in the literature, a molecule he liked, you know, a drug molecule, um, particularly a molecule that was very potent, which basically means it acted at very low concentrations, he would typically write whoever reported that and say, I'm Saul Snyder, and it'd be great to get a sample of your drug. In this case, he had written Saran Segal, who came up earlier. And Saran, who I unfortunately never met, was incredibly nice and sent us a ridiculous amount of rapamycin, which you know, technically at that point was priceless because it was not purchasable, but when it did become purchasable, I calculated at one point the street price would have been like ten million dollars or something. <laughs> wow! <laughs> the and amount that he sent you, the amount that he sent us, which at some point we actually lost, which is a little bit bad. But, but the the more important thing he sent, which which again you have to remember, this was before there was a lot of sort of electronic papers. It wasn't that easy necessarily to search things online. It was that was pretty primitive. He sent us a book with it that said and bibliography, which. He had put this little note that just said, perhaps of interest. And, and basically, this book had everything ever published on this drug, which again, reignited my interest in sort of the molecule, because there was a lot of cool things. And most of these were abstracts. These were sort of little, actually, mostly from meetings where people had reported little things about this drug. So that's how I started working on it. So I decided, well, why not
2: try to figure out how this drug works? And for a, for a lay audience, we can get a little technical, of course, and we probably will, what are the most interesting apl- potential applications or applications of rapamycin in humans?
0: Oh yeah, so they're the they established... Wait, can I just interrupt? Yeah. If, I For think sure. that's a great question. But just to put it in the larger context of biology, so what David did as a graduate student was to discover the target of rapamycin. So in other words, what does rapamycin? myosin bind to what protein? that protein today we call it mTOR, mechanistic target of rapamycin. Now, you know, I was a graduate student at the same time that David was at the University of Chicago. I mean, I think I had heard of mTOR, and I was working on mitochondria and metabolism, but not really caring about mTOR. But you know, you look back now over what's happened in the last 20 years, mTOR Unequivocally is the most dominant player in regulating metabolism. What does that mean? You think of nucleotide synthesis, lipids, right? DNA, what you know, how you make DNA, how you make RNA, how you make new lipids, is how do you make amino acids, all of that stuff, mTOR controls. And also mTOR itself is sensitive to changes in amino acids growth factors, has a lot of different inputs, oxygen, and perhaps even glucose. So this thing is really an integrator of, you can think of like nutritional things, keep it simple, and also how it outputs things like what you make, lipids, DNA, RNA. It is clearly the most dominant player in the world of metabolism. Um, And that's, you know, so That's a big deal, right? That's like saying the equivalent of that, you know, uh, some protein that regulates gene expressions, right? And there's a very famous one like MYC. It doesn't matter, but... So it's at that level. It's one of the big, big proteins uh, that's ever been discovered uh, in the field of biology. So you can't, you know, underestimate David's contribution in biology because it's a big, big deal. And now you have a drug called rapamycin that can affect this major player that regulates metabolism. And if you think metabolism is the key to understanding many diseases out there, including (sighs) diabetes, which is unfortunately rampant in the United States, cancer, lots of things, if you buy into that larger idea that metabolism holds the key to understanding many diseases, the big ones, you know, uh, atherosclerosis, neurodegeneration autoimmunity then you have to talk about mtor and rapamycin and that's you know probably david's legacy
2: and and be. just to just to revisit a term you mentioned a few times because i know the word metabolism is perhaps overused in many different contexts oh, by there's m- a simple so, definition so, so of so Yeah, exactly no no exactly that's what i'm going to ask you how, what should people how should people define metabolism
0: my simplest definition comes actually from my daughter anjali i always tell this story she was little she's going to be 15 next week she i asked her what do you think of metabolism she said isn't that when you grow things or you break down food and so what does that mean the act of growth we call anabolism so that's half of the equation in the metabolism field and the other one is breaking down food, which is catabolism. So metabolism is a sum of either anabolism and catabolism. Either m- taking food and making stuff, muscles, for example, or breaking food so you have enough energy to use those muscles and go on you know, Ironman triathlons like our friend Peter Atia does all the time. <laughs> Just for fun, including this week, <laughs> as, I, as
2: I've observed we, we, myself. The Tahiti swim. The, the Tahiti yeah, swim. Yeah, I know. Yeah, we'll go to the beach. Yeah. It's like, all right, we're going to take a quick swim. And well, I don't even where's, swim. Where's, so, you where's know? Peter? And then it seems like he's en route to Tahiti, and we see him about an hour later.
0: Well, actually, here, there's a Birdman, con- there's a Birdman competition historically, uh, and Peter can describe exactly what that competition had to do with. But so I've nicknamed him the Birdman now. <laughs> that's his official new nickname. We the Birdman. Called, though, we called Tim
3: G.I. Joe though, right? Okay.
0: Well yeah. Well, <laughs> uh, that's just, more just obvious. You guys know. <laughs>
3: By the way, David, what uh when you and Tim were on the same flight down here, what was your first observation of Tim on the plane? <laughs> oh, that was hilarious. So I had no I mean I I think I'd
4: briefly seen who you were, so I had some hint of what I was looking for, but but I I was changed from a flight from uh from Houston into one from Miami. And so there's this guy in front of me, obviously quite buff. He keeps getting out of his seat. He opens some big luggage, always in the middle. And we were lucky to be in business class, but people couldn't cross like on the aisle. (laughs) He opens it and he's taking a lot of pills. He seems like a very high maintenance man, I have to say. Like things are coming out, taking out. And the poor flight has tried to cross and he doesn't really care. He's still just didn't have looking for bottles and bottles. I'm like, oh my God, this guy's a little bit of nutty. I was like, I wonder if that's Tim Ferriss. The
0: official term I, is
4: freak show. Freak show. And I, and I thought in my head, I hope it's not, actually. <laughs> <laughs> but then when I landed, and, I, and uh, then I found from Peter, because I assumed since you were coming from California, you're on the same flight as Peter, but he's like, no, he's on the Miami flight. So I was like, oh my God, that, that guy. That's the guy. That's him. But so can I say my definition of what MTOR does? Yes. Since I give talks on this all the time. It, I, the way, and I think Nav put it in a very good way. It's a very simple thing. It senses whether there's nutrients in the environment, and it decides whether our body is catabolic or anabolic. It makes that decision. And the reason it does so many things is that we don't think about this in our lives, because if anything, we're overfed, or at least most people are overfed. But if you think in, in the evo- our evolutionary history, the life of most animals out there, Food scarcity is likely the rule and, and likely we went from boom and bust periods, right? You might kill an animal, eat for a bit of time, and then really go into a bit of a fast or prolonged fast. And so this is this protein that's making the decision and knowing which state you're in and all of your physiology, right? From your fertility to whether your muscles are growing to you know, even hair growth, all of these things should be controlled whether you're in a nutrient-rich or a nutrient-poor environment. So that's the way I like to uh to think about it.
3: So I have a question actually for now, do you do you um do you can You're not you- gonna tell about the Birdman competition? <laughs> we'll
2: let's talk about go, that. Let's, let's cover Birdman real quick. All go right. The but I my, 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 I'm the gonna come
3: back to a question about Easter autophagy, Island. but okay. So the Birdman competition is kind of this thing that I think the moment we heard about it we all decided we wanted to do. No.
0: First of all, I don't no, no, swim. No. Let's be clear about Pe- that. Peter wanted to do it very Only fast. Peter wanted to do it, okay? <laughs> No, I,
3: I, I have to say, I was tempted. You would do it. I, I would. I might not because I would die, but but I would be tempted to do it. I don't think I can do it justice to describe because it's hard to explain what Easter Island looks like, but maybe we could post a couple pictures of this or something. Well, it's but
0: a cliff you have
3: to jump There's like what well, I don't not. know. How high is they that cliff? Climb. It's got to be 100, 100 meters, 150 meters? Yeah, probably 100 to 200 meters. All right, meters, so you yeah. picture a 150 to 200 meter vertical wall. Which is the side. Which is the side the outside of the, of the yeah, of one of the points. It's a, basically a triangle shaped island. And then about a kilometer out you have no actually no, no, one, 1. one and a half kilometers 1. out 5, yeah. you have uh, two small rocks which are just more pieces of lava And the birdman competition the athletes would start at the top scale down the 200 meter cliff and again i don't know how anybody did that without dying swim out to the island climb up it which itself looks almost impossible get one of the eggs Of the bird. Now, what was the name of the bird? It was a
4: turn, but. Some uh, sort
3: of a bird. And then you had to. Apparently no longer exist. Using a piece of cloth, strap the egg to your forehead, swim back, climb the 200 meter cliff, and you would present that egg to the leader of your village or tribe. And he would then become, I don't know, the de facto ruler of the year. For the year yeah for at, the next year at the quarry though apparently he also
2: got that extraordinarily small house that we that we were <laughs> <Exactly>. remember <laughs> uh so you were going to ask about autophagy uh but before we get to autophagy because this may be well i'm sure it'll come up many times but a- again just for people who are who, who may not like me have a biochemistry background what are some of the most interesting uh, potential applications of rapamycin? Yeah, so you, you know, the first one was this
4: antifungal potential use. That actually never took off, interestingly enough. So that, that, it never got approved for that. But the thing, first thing that was approved for was for organ transplants, right? And particularly kidney transplants. And so you need to suppress the immune system. And that was the first major use. So that your body doesn't reject it. Doesn't reject it, exactly. Um, and, and more recently, it was approved actually for pancreatic islet transplants. So the, the insulin-producing cells. It had a lot of use in, in in cardiology and these things called stents, where you open up coronary vessels. And then more recently as an anti-cancer agent. So those are all, you know, FDA approved clinical trials validate the use of the molecule. At one point, the cardiology one was actually a major use, a major market from an economic point of view. The the aspect of it that has been tantalizing, and, and probably the reason we're having this conversation, and, the, and certainly the reason that Peter got interested in it is that starting some time ago, first actually in worms, in very small worms called uh, C. elegans, uh, it was actually found that inhibiting this system, the mTOR pathway, increased lifespan. By how much? Um, You know, it depends, 20%, 30%, 15%, 30%. But a non-trivial amount. A non-trivial amount if you extrapolate to to our lifespans. These are organisms that live, you know, in the order of a week to 10 days type of thing. And then it was, it was validated in yeast, which of course single-cell organisms, and then it was validated in mice, which are obviously much more similar to us. And so that captivated a lot of people's attention. And I, and I think it's fair to say that of all the molecules that have been shown to have an effect on lifespan, this is probably the best validated in the sense that multiple different investigators have done. You know, Lifespan studies are notoriously fickle. Multiple people have done this one. It's been done in multiple organisms that span a large evolutionary range, right from a single cell yeast to a mammal. And so this has you know, captivated people's attention as to whether it would have that impact in us. right? Obviously, a next to impossible clinical trial to do in a, in a human being, but it is now being done by people like Matt Cable and dogs. And so that's potentially quite exciting.
2: And now part of what makes... We're going to bounce around a lot. That's just the nature of how these things go. So the the study, including or using dogs that you just mentioned, is not part of what makes that interesting that these dogs are not, say, a single breed that have been raised specifically for lab purposes.
4: Exactly. So I, so I think there's a couple aspects that make it interesting. So one... Uh, you could, if you want to be cynical about the mouse studies, which are so far the ones that have been done the most by multiple labs, we've even done them. If you want to be cynical, you say, Well, these are mice living in a cage. They're completely inbred. They're bored out of their minds. They're probably overeating. You know, these are the equivalent of a couch potato type of human. And sure, it's helping them. But what if you had a mouse that was living in the wild, you know, was entertained, right? things that that it would be very different than this kind of mouse. And so the reason that that the dog study is interesting is first, it's many breeds. So it's not just type of inbred mouse strain. And they're also, these are dogs living with people. So they're going to be in many different environments and presumably they're going to have more entertainment and exercise than these mice did. So my fear of the mouse studies is, okay, are we just treating, you know, chubby, bored, depressed mice? And okay, it's helping them, but if they weren't that, maybe it wouldn't help them.
2: Right. In so much as if you're treating the Homer Simpson meets, uh, you know, inbred fill in the blank. I'm, I'm blanking on this movie. Why am I blank? No, 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 no. Help me out. Banjo playing. Oh, God. Horrible. Oh, joke deliverance? I'm not gonna, yes. Deliverance. Like the Homer Simpson meets deliverance <laughs> of mice. You may see squeal like a pig. Exactly, oh. squeal like a pig. If if you so you might see a large improvement in say a whatever n of ten of these mice. But if you have the Peter Tia of mice, you might not see right. And of course, we could help the mice by making them exercise
4: right. right. So it's, it wouldn't be something so unique. So, so if it works in the dogs, I think that will be quite a sort of milestone moment. But
0: but David, it's I mean lifespan is one output. But the other one that you and I always talk about, and Peter's a big fan of this, and he can probably comment a little bit more about this, is health span, right? And I think perhaps for the audience, it might be worth just discussing, and maybe Peter or David can talk about what does lifespan versus health span mean. I mean, and again, you know, there's a there's a philosophical debate about what these what's the how much you weigh health span versus lifespan. In other words, how healthy you live, but you still die at, you know, as a male at 85, let's say, or you live, but you die like at 110 and perhaps not so healthy those last 20 years. So
3: So Peter. Yeah, I mean, I think about this problem a lot just clinically, because um I think the way you've described it is what everybody's concern is, right? I mean, my practice focuses on longevity. Um, but most people misinterpret that to be lifespan only, which is the mathematical elongation or extension of number of years of life, which, you know, if the quality of that life does not get extended, most people would not opt for that. So sort of think about life's True. No, no. I'm saying most people are afraid of that, right? Most people say there's no value to me. if If I'm, if my expected lifespan is 79 years and you're going to make it, you know, if we you could make it 85, but I'm continuing to deteriorate in my quality, that's not what I want. I mean uh, most people feel that way. Right. And so it it has been shown that if you do look at metrics of health in mice
4: many, but certainly not all are affected by rapamycin and there are even now some in a positive way. In a positive way. Yeah. And and you know the study that got the most interest which is in people and elderly people looking at immune cell, cell, uh, function using a derivative rapamycin that works the same way but is slightly chemically different from from a company called Novartis also caused that was accident. the
3: turning point for that's the moment which I I mean we all have these moments when we kind of like the light bulb goes off but that was December 24th 2014 I still have my copy of the paper which still has embargo stamped on it cuz I got it on the 23rd so it said you know basically for 24 but hours you can't to, do anything but, with this paper
0: but but just just for the audience again one of the major issues as we age is our ability to fight fight infections decreases, right? So in other words, the immune system is not as robust as we age. And what this study suggested is that perhaps by taking rapamycin, not early in life, actually quite late, uh, given to these elderly people, it allowed you to boost your immune system, and that would could potentially translate into fighting infections like the common flu, which uh, many elderly get,
3: right? Yeah, I mean, this, this study was remarkable, right? Because people, uh, I think at this point, David, it's safe to say people realize, because it was really 2009 when the sort of landmark mice studies were coming online, mm-hmm. But you still had this five year gap where people said, yes, yeah, so what? It, it extends life, but at what cost? These are laboratory animals. They don't have the same infectious risks. This is, you know, you're going to trade one problem for the other. What this study did was it took, and it's a relatively small study 50 to 60 people per arm. It was a forearm study. They were 65 years. By arm. Uh, so, so there were four groups of people. People randomized into four groups. Each group is called an arm. There were, like I said, somewhere between 50 and 60 people in each group or arm. And there was a placebo group. So they were giving nothing. The next group was given 0.5 milligrams of this rapalog or rapamycin analog every day. The next group was given five milligrams once a week. And the final group was given 20 milligrams once a week. The primary outcome, and by the way, they were only treated for six weeks. Then there was a two week washout, which means you get none of the drug. And then the vaccinations begin. What the study actually measured is the response to vaccination, which would be a pretty decent proxy in a sample size this small for infection response. And uh, I mean, the gist of it, it's been a while since I've actually read the paper, but I remember knowing every detail of it at one point. The gist of it is that the Patients treated with rapamycin or the rapalog all had a better immune response than the controls. What was the
2: the difference or the differences between the dosage range and the uh, uh, the dosing schedule?
3: Yeah, I, I was worried you were going to ask that. I re, I don't remember it for the immune response. I do remember it for the side effects. Do you remember if the what the immune response looked like? I think all of them. They had, all had a benefit. They all of placebo, but that, I don't remember yeah. which one. I don't know there. where it plateaued. I don't remember either. Yeah, the the uh, most common side effect to my recollection was the mouth sores, which we certainly saw a lot of in transplant patients. So transplant patients, a kidney transplant patient, which is You know, when I was in residency, we used to give rapamycin out like it was water. I think we were giving patients somewhere between one and two milligrams a day. It was about the right dose. And certainly one of the more common side effects were these apthous ulcers. Uh, I'm assuming, although I, I mean, I assume it's just because mucosal cells are so proliferative that when you're giving a drug that inhibits proliferation, you know, we're going to see uh, deterioration of those cells. And so certainly the ulcers were probably the most common side effect. And they seem- And certainly what people would complain the most about, Yeah. Right? Yeah, definitely. Um, at some point we should remember to come back to finish the story of Seren, because there's actually kind of an interesting story there, which we should come back to at some point, but um, just what you said made me think of that. But there is definitely a dose response to side effects, right? So.
2: Sorry, to yank. (laughs) I've had an audio complication, so Pete and I are sharing a mic. Uh, What is the logic or rationale behind intermittent dosing of rapamycin?
3: I'm going to give you the short answer. David will give you the long answer. Um, The other thing David did was he figured out that there were basically two complexes for mTOR. So mTOR, if it organized around a protein called Raptor, was known as mTOR complex 1 or mTORC1. If mTOR organized around a protein called Richter, it was mTORC2 or mTOR complex 2. The thinking behind intermittent dosing versus constitutive dosing, where you just give it constantly, is intermittently you can target mTORC1 and not cross over to mTORC2. And I'll let David say more on that, but that's the gist of it. So I think that's certainly true because it's,
4: clear but from genetic studies largely inhibiting mTOR 2 is, is not a good thing. But I was to add the other thing that intermittent dosing m- might allow you to do, and I, and I think this is going to be
2: increasing. And sorry to interrupt. Intermittent dosing, does that mean once per week? Does that mean once every other day? What would that hypothetically look like?
4: It could mean anything. It basically means that at some point you, the drug in your blood goes to a very, let's say, ineffectual dose, right? So that you're basically relieving the inhibition of mTOR caused by rapamycin as opposed to a continuous dosing where you basically want to can always have an inhibit, which in, in many cases is what you know, pharmacologists might try to actually optimize around, is to keep that inhibition. Although there's been a, quite a bit of a, I would say, ground change in how people are thinking about this in, in many fields. In this case, if you, if you look at the function of mTOR in many different tissues, it's quite clear that it's an essential protein. And What I mean by that is if you knock it out in a particular tissue, that tissue dies. about the muscle? It's very clear. And really almost every tissue. In contrast, if you hyperactivate it, that is, turn it on to a very high level, the tissue also suffers. And so this is an example where too little is bad, too much is bad. It's really in between. And so you need to basically figure out a way where you're going to let at some point, let's say the muscle actually have its mTOR and do the things, which as Nav said is going to be anabolic, you know, make muscle. But at other points, you want to be able to inhibit the system, and that's actually going to drive this catabolism. And and many people think that it's this catabolic process that's why it has these anti-aging processes. And very simplistically, and I would say that this is is conceptually interesting, but probably not well proven, the idea that is if you make a cell, like a muscle cell, degrade lots of its components and force it to remake them, if there was things that were messed up, that had aged, that were defective, you might clean them up and, and replace them with good things, right? So a bit like cleaning house. And so this cycle of anabolism and catabolism, which we think is what the pathway normally does in response to food, right, or absence of food, you might actually want to mimic that with rapamycin as well. So inhibit, cause the cells to clean house by degrading lots of stuff. But now you got to remake stuff, right? You, you, you can't just clean house and throw everything out and not make things. And so you also need to let the system rebuild and so intermittent dosing would let you do that.
0: So just, just, just for the audience, um, and it's actually this concept that David just talked about, this clearing up of perhaps of uh, damaged goods in your muscle or in your body um, is a process called autophagy. And just last week, the Nobel Prize was given for the discovery of autophagy to a Japanese scientist. Yeah, not,
4: not the discovery, the
2: genetic analysis. Sorry, the genetic analysis. Didou discovered discover. autophagy, autophagy we were, meaning eating right. itself, or eating yourself, right. auto-eating, auto-eating. auto-eating. Exactly. Sorry,
0: the, the the molecular basis of and the genetics really of autophagy, but the actual observation was done almost in the '70s or '60s. Probably yes. Yeah, by probably, Christian yeah. Devoe, who also won a Nobel Prize for different things. So in other words, an mTOR is controlling this process when you inhibit it. That, That's a fair statement, right, David?
4: Yeah, it normally suppresses autophagy, so it prevents catabolism because it's in a high nutrient state. So when you inhibit mTOR, you eat yourself.
0: Do you think, David, that many of the beneficial effects of rapamycin are, is because rapamycin inhibits mTOR and that then activates autophagy?
4: There are certainly studies in worm that suggest. that. What
0: about the, in higher organisms?
4: I don't think there's any that have done that yet.
0: Do you have a good um, explanation as to why rapamycin might have a positive effect on health span and lifespan? Then
4: I, I personally like. You that, like the topic? I like the idea. idea of, oh, you oh, you do, do like it. It's okay, been tested. So,
2: so, so I have a question, one for each of you guys. Uh, David, does intermittent Dosing of Is it plausible that, using big words because I feel intellectually insecure, let me try something easier. So <laughs> does intermittent dosing of rapamycin in any way mimic fasting, going through sort of feast and famine phases?
4: I, I think it, it very well could. And, and I think the issue is that none of us really fast, if you really think about it right, if you have dinner at six, you get up at six a 12-hour fast is probably not that big a deal for any of us, particularly if you've got a little bit of extra you know, heft on you. And so I don't think, as sort of modern humans, we probably ever fast.
5: Mm-hmm. Right?
4: And so in a way, when you're giving rapamycin, you're forcing a fast at the molecular level. You're not doing it by depriving food, but you're tricking the system. That's One way of thinking about rapamycin is it tricks the system into thinking that the animal's fasting and triggers all the responses that you'd normally get with fasting. So I definitely think what you're saying is true. But I think what we realize now is that you can't put the animal into a constant fasted phase. Mm-hmm. You need to have this kind of recovery. To make stuff, right, you break down, you have to make back. And so that's why I think the intermittent dosing is very appealing. And at the same time, it has this enormous benefit that probably, and this is almost certainly true, you're going to reduce potential side effects. Because mm-hmm. right? other cells that are the ones that are getting hurt, it causes side effects. For example, the mucosa of your mouth can also recover to some extent. So it's really a win-win.
0: But 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 David, to go from a fasted state, sorry, a fed state to a fasted state, you can imagine maybe has benefits. But when you go from a, a fasted state back to a fed state, are there any downsides? Right, because, because the regiment is you go from fed. To fasted, back to fed, so there's two, you know, there's two curves there: fed to fasted, fasted back to fed. The refeeding, are there any potential? I mean, have we thought about the um, the potential hazards as of of the refed state? I can think of a few. Sure, but, but on the other hand, that's always going to happen, right? Either you if you're, or you think in evolution it happened. all the time, so we've adapted to that. Well,
2: it has to, right? Uh, Yeah, I would argue, but... So, David, I have a question for you, if I I may interrupt just for a moment, or for many moments. I'll probably do that more than once. Uh, Many of the people listening, certainly a decent percentage in Silicon Valley, will be asking themselves, what is the difference between rapamycin and something perhaps they've heard more of, which is metformin? How would you answer that?
4: Well, metformin is a, is a, a drug. It's, certainly, it's one of the most commonly prescribed drugs. I don't know if it still is the most common, but as you know, it's prescribed for, as an anti diabetic drug. And I'm certainly not an expert Nav it. Nov knows a lot more about it. And the reason is that it's quite clear that metformin is an inhibitor of respiration. And the way it works is by inhibiting the mitochondria.
2: Now, in this case, what do you mean by respiration? It's oxygen people
4: think consumption. Breathing. Yeah. So, yeah. so oxygen consumption at the cellular level. So, you know, the cells use oxygen to generate energy and the way they do that is using the mitochondria and they use something called the electron transport chain. And metformin is quite clearly an inhibitor of the electron transport chain. And so, and I'll let Nov speak in a second, you know, the, the mTOR pathway, we, we kept saying it sort of is turned on by food. But, you know, food is is obviously a complex mixture of many things and it's composed of many different nutrients in it. And some of those nutrients, they contribute to energy right, inside cells. And so the mTOR pathway, what's to me, actually, from a scientific point of view, has been always the most fascinating aspect of it is it basically detects everything. Amino acids, glucose, and it turns out energy. And so by inhibiting the mitochondria, which is generating energy, you're also inhibiting the mTOR pathway. And so you, you, you certainly might expect that there's a lot of overlap between metformin and rapamycin, and indeed in cells and culture, if you treat them with metformin, you will also inhibit the mTOR pathway. Rapamycin does it directly by attacking mTOR itself, while metformin does it, as we say scientifically, much more upstream, much more in an indirect fashion.
2: What are the the benefits or disadvantages of using one over the other four i should say of course when when i when i mentioned people in silicon valley they are using metformin for what they believe to be life extension properties well you know metformin
4: is is obviously prescribed to probably hundreds of millions of people to diabetes and and it is is generally considered to be a very very safe drug uh, rapamycin as we were talked about has been used more limitedly in a more limited fashion and also has more potentially, you know, side effects such as, such as these mouth ulcers, but as well as others. So I think the perception is that metformin is a much more tolerated compound. What I would say is, is perhaps if we think, if we think mTOR inhibition is a good thing, right, for prolonging lifespan, and I think substantial evidence suggests it is, metformin turns out to act mostly in one tissue, which is the liver. And then the effects in the liver have then secondary effects in other tissues. But rapamycin is going to act basically in all tissues in your body. It's going to get everywhere, inhibited mTOR everywhere. So so the degree of inhibition of mTOR that you're going to get with those molecules is likely to be very different, um, just, just on the face of how we know how how they work.
0: But one... Um, so that's, that's one difference between the two, obviously, as David stated. But the other one is is because rapamycin directly inhibits mTOR while metformin indirectly inhibits metformin and mTOR. So one um, key aspect of potentially inhibiting the respiratory chain, metformin would be, there's, you know, the respiratory chain is a lot of other things. things, And so you can imagine there that there are multiple outputs that are linked to the respiratory chain and by inhibiting, including possibly mTOR, so by inhibiting the respiratory chain by metformin, you could be affecting three, four or five other parameters which might be quite beneficial. But the downside is it's restricted to its effects on a few tissues. Yeah, and I
4: I don't think the studies, Peter will know this much better than I will, I'm not sure there's, Lots of studies that really show metformin itself as a pro-lifespan agent. I think there are some. What, what captivated people's excitement about metformin is is large epidemiological studies of diabetics using metformin or not using metformin and showing a pretty profound difference in cancer rates. That That's what grabbed people's attentions with metformin. I think there's a lot of assumptions that would have lifespan effects. Certainly it would, perhaps from, from reducing cancer, that would be one but i'm not sure that that animal studies have have validated like rapamycin clearly prolongs lifespan in you know in mice that i described maybe are are a little bit artificial compared to free living mice but peter i don't know if, has that been shown for for no, metformin I mean,
3: well you're you're exactly right i mean there are half a dozen really good cohort studies um looking at not just diabetic patients but uh, obese and insulin resistant non-diabetic patients taking metformin and not taking metformin. So again, always important to point out the disclaimer. These are not a randomized controlled trials, so you can always be fooled by confounders. But the relative impacts are strong enough. So the, you know, I think the aggregate. Effect is something to the tune of about a 20, 15 to 20% reduction in the incidence of cancer and about a 25 to 30% uh, reduction in mortality or extension of survival in the presence of cancer. Now, the majority of the evidence for this is in breast cancer, only because that's where we have uh, the most studies that have looked. But, um, you know, it certainly appears that two thirds of cancer. Cancers may be impacted by this. Now, now something we talked about earlier in the week.
0: So, so it it you could argue, perhaps positively affects health span rather than maybe lifespan. But has the mouse study been done, for example? Does metformin prolong
4: lifespan in a mouse?
0: Yeah, it was a Nature Communications paper from the NIH group Rafael de Cabo, and it was interesting. I think they tried two different doses. As one was. More beneficial than the other. I think one of them was not as beneficial.
1: So, so the
3: question that we—I know we talked about this week—but it's uh, that I think remains but, still but unresolved. Just, just
0: to clarify, I think David is absolutely right. Rapamycin clearly—I think the consensus is clear—that it does increase lifespan, and as robustly as any compound that you know that's out there. Um, but metformin it's not so clear i mean i always tend to think of metformin for more of a health span right it's reasonable anti diabetic drug uh, perhaps has some anti cancer effects at least the epidemiology supports that uh, and then there's some other effects that people have noted with metformin in just terms of health span and and i think i think that's what has captivated people rather than just pure, you know, increase in number of years, right? Isn't, I mean, you and I have talked about this.
2: So I'm going to quickly ask a question of Peter, and then we can continue on this thread, which is uh, definitions. Epidemiology, it's come up a couple of times already, but I'm sure there are people in the audience who are not familiar with that term. Could you describe what that means?
3: Yeah, these are uh, basically observational analyses of uh, data that were not gathered through the process of randomization. So in some cases, they can be really, really disorganized. In some cases, they can be quite organized where you go back and get surveys of people to look at behaviors and things like that. Um, so so that, that's what epidemiology is. And sometimes epidemiology really gives amazing answers. One of the things we were goofing around talking about at lunch the other day was how no one ever needed to do a randomized control trial to show that smoking caused cancer. Um, now, that happens to be a very powerful example because the epidemiology demonstrated something called a hazard ratio that was very high. A hazard ratio is the ratio of the people who do the thing you care about and get the condition you care about to those who don't. And in the case of smoking, I think the hazard ratio was somewhere between 10 and 14 X. So um, and it, when you look at the sort of godfathers of epidemiology, uh, they would they would make the case that when a hazard ratio is above four or five, the likelihood of a causal relationship is stronger, meaning epidemiology at best gives you a correlation. Um, the problem with many things that we use epidemiology for today, like nutrition, is the hazard ratios are very low. They're typically below two um and so you can't really infer cause so that's always the law drawback and that's the problem with the metformin data is there uh, the RCTs the randomized controlled trials which are very small but they are happening right now are looking at non hard outcomes so the two big studies um what the one was out of Toronto the one out of Oxford that came out about what a year and a half ago now they were looking at women who were re- recently diagnosed with breast cancer who were in what's called a neoadjuvant window. So woman gets a diagnosis of breast cancer. She's about to start something called neoadjuvant therapy in a few weeks, um, which is therapy before she undergoes surgical correction. And in that window, they would give some women metformin and other women a placebo. And so it's a very short time to treat them, and these were studies that were tried to get at a question. that. I think Nav was sort of alluding to a minute ago, right, which is, does metformin exert its effect directly by doing what David said, right, going into the mitochondria, inhibiting complex one, uh, creating a lower ratio of NAD to NADH, and interfering with the electron transport chain, or is it an indirect effect by inhibiting the amount of glucose that comes out of the liver, which keeps not only glucose lower, but insulin lower presumably IGF-1 lower. And, Nav, I think the consensus from those studies is we don't know. Yeah, certainly mouse models that try to look at
4: the cancer effects suggest that they are what, what we call cell autonomous, right? Nav did, did really the first of these, is that it's the metformin acting in the cancer cell itself that matters. But for these health span effects, particularly the glucose-lowering, insulin-lowering ones, it's almost certainly the indirect effects. So it's probably going to depend on what you actually care about.
0: And, and, and just you know, to be clear, the it's there's not uh, unlike what rapamycin does, and largely thanks to David's work. I mean, I think everybody believes that rapamycin inhibits mTOR, right, David? There are there's still some outliers out there, but <laughs> <sorry>. <laughs> <laughs> twenty years later, there's still yeah. some outliers there. Uh, I doubt. Okay, there might be, but there's still some flat world. Yeah, people out exactly. There but yes, um, but with metformin. You know, I think that the cancer data, at least using uh, laboratory models, does suggest that metformin inhibits the respiratory chain um, and the mitochondria. But, you know, there's not a good consensus on how it works as an anti-diabetic. It has reasonable anti-inflammatory properties as well. And um, it's not clear how it
4: quite does that. Well, you know, unlike rapamycin, which is highly potent, metformin not, and people wouldn't, so right. drugs that typically work at high concentrations, people tend to find lots of potential.
0: There could be multiple targets of metformin to explain all these things that metformin does, anti-inflammation, anti-diabetes, anti-cancer. Uh, but you know, I think David, and I've talked about this before, I always say that The reason rapamycin works so well and because it can do so much is because it hits a a protein like mTOR, which really sits at the heart of metabolism. Well, I would argue mitochondria, uh, if you open up your textbooks, also sits at the heart of metabolism, and so one way to simply explain all the multiple effects of metformin is what if it hit the same target all the time? Just like rapamycin hits the same target all the time. In this case, rapamycin hits mTOR, metformin hits mitochondrial complex one, um, and that could explain all these multiple different effects. I mean, that's how, the rapamycin, just to be clear, is hitting mTOR. Whether metformin works exclusively by inhibiting in, uh, mitochondria is still an ongoing work in progress.
2: So so let me ask a a couple of questions of both of you. The first is, I'll start with just an observation. The the friends I have who take Metformin are very rarely those who... (laughs) Some finger pointing going on. Uh, (laughs) Very rarely, not always, those who can read the literature and understand the studies. So. My question to you is: Do you take metformin? Why or why not? I do not take metformin. Why not? It's laziness. <laughs> what was that? L-
0: laziness. <laughs> laziness. Well, well yeah, it doesn't because... have much side effects. So there's... Well, I um, I, I generally think of metformin as a you know as a drug that um is used for anti-diabetes. Right. That's clear has been used that for a long time all this other stuff like anti-inflammation anti-cancer that's still ongoing work i mean that's not you know that all of that data isn't completely now, m- many people think though okay it doesn't have, what's the downside you right, could say right right that's right that's a different question but but i'm just saying for myself of and so i exercise right i i play soccer still i'm in my mid 40s i'm uh, my as Peter will uh can um talk about this but the things that Peter likes to look at I think I would say that I I'm pretty healthy so I don't feel why should I take metformin
2: what is the now, downside well
0: plus yeah one thing has not been said here
4: we were once at a dinner with 20 or so people and the topic came up whether anyone want to actually you know live a very long time i'd say i was the only person plus a very small angry man who was there too but Nav was not in that uh,
2: category. So, Nav did not want to necessarily extend life.
0: No. No. Why is that? I, um, I, I oh, uh, so David want, wanted to live till 600. I think that was the exact number. Well, that's, that's <laughs> the number
4: apparently. If, you, if you're immortal, you get hit by a bus at that point.
0: Right. So, so you've got another. <laughs> those, those buses 600 years from now are going to be really fast. You've got they? another 500. <laughs> 50, 80 years left. Um, I, I think, you know, everybody has a, uh, an internal clock that they want to get the most out of life. And I think about 80 years, maybe
2: 90, no more than 100 for me. Do you think having a lifespan, an expected lifespan of more than 100 would make you less sort of effective in your life because you would just see more slack in the system ahead of you?
0: Oh, yeah. That's already happened.
2: (laughs) But that's (laughs) you, though, right?
0: Right. Well, well, I mean, the original four-hour week guy, right? (laughs) This guy stole it from me, I think, you know? (laughs) I mean, it's clear. I mean, he's a little bit younger, so, you know, that's...
2: David, how many many scientists who you would consider credible, or people, for that matter, who are just informed, uh, take rapamycin? for longevity purposes or I think very few. I mean I've
4: um it's a, obviously I have no real data on it but I can tell you so I've given talks and and throughout the world on rapamycin and it's not infrequent that when I put up a slide that shows some of the clinical effects including immunosuppression I will then have people at the end of the talk quite angry at me and telling me that by putting up that it's an immunosuppressant which of course is an FDA approved use, so it is an immunosuppressant, um, Peter gave it for kidney transplant patients, will tell me that I'm now dissuading people from taking it, and quite angrily saying, look, that that you're doing a disservice, because people who might otherwise take it now see that it may have this side effect. So so clearly, people are thinking about this. I probably know maybe two people that, that take it, um, and, you know... And, and some of it is that that it does have potentially more side effects I think what we don't know is if you were to take it at these very low doses you know this one a week once a week dose those side effects might be quite tolerable
2: up to what dose on a weekly basis do you think those side effects could conceivably be tolerable you know I think probably a couple couple
4: of milligrams would be the the, the range um, you know the, the the mouth sores is what and you probably saw this Sounds miserable. Tra- I mean, I don't want I, it's been described to me as having like a full you know an entire cold, a cold sore throughout your mouth okay. right? which is obviously not going to be so pleasant but I do think at these lower doses it's a much more minimal
2: tolerable uh, thing why would you not take it yourself
4: You know, it's again, it's a bit of, I mean, it's a bit of a laziness thing, right? I, I, am not such a quantitative self kind of person. Now, just
2: just to put things in perspective, also, we were talking about phosphatidylserine, (laughs) pre-bed to lower cortisol. And David, you seem very worried about Fastinary. You're like, "No, it just no, it doesn't no, make I really, any sense I mean, to me." Well, it didn't make any sense. So, so actually, let's talk about this because there are a couple of things. No, no, no. But I do, wait,
0: just just yeah. to be clear, so as people get angry, like David was saying sometimes after his talk, uh so people come up to me all the time and say, "You know, your friend David looks remarkably young, which he does as you can see." I just tell him, oh, he uses rapamycin. Well, as a, when I was pretty as a emperor, joke. I, but I ingested the, a lot. But the reality is you might have been exposed to it as a young right, but man. That
4: would be an incredibly intermittent dose, right? right. It would have been a, a dose over about a year and a half period. Probably quite high, but uh, never again.
2: You do look young. He does look young, doesn't he? he he's like like, he like an Argentine sheriff. <laughs> That is not a good statement.
4: Argentine cherub. But my parents actually look quite young too. But no, maybe, look, maybe all you need is one big bolus when you're young. When
0: you're young, early in life.
2: And that's it? I think that's the reason. What would be the downside? Because I don't buy laziness. You're the guy who runs through the airport like 500 meters ahead of enough to maximize those 15 minutes in between flights. So I, I'm not sure I buy the laziness argument. Why not do intermittent low dosing of rapamycin? But I mean, some of it, you know,
4: the, the will is not there to figure. So if someone came and actually did some trial, if a Peter-like person did that and figured out some intermittent dose, which clearly didn't have a lot of side effects, yeah, sure, I would do it. But someone's going to have to do that, right? I'm not sure that I'm the person to experiment on myself. I
2: So I want to come back to you. Right now, which is, you mentioned, I I just, the the phosphatidylserine argument didn't make sense to me for a bunch of reasons. And we're not going to dwell on that. But uh, there's a lot of bad science out there and there's a lot of bad reporting on science. Uh, so Nov, I wanted to ask you about antioxidants.
0: Oh, wait, wait, we'll get to that in one second. Okay. I just want to just finish this idea as to why I don't take metformin or why David doesn't take rapamycin. And, and, and I think ultimately for us as scientists, and and maybe um, this isn't for everybody, but for us, we'd like to see large-scale clinical trials done on these molecules, right? Right? And what metformin has been done over and over in large scale is in patients that are diabetic or pre-diabetics perhaps. So as I said, I don't based on my diet which is reasonable, based on my genetics which diabetes doesn't run in my family, based on the fact I still play hardcore soccer, or I don't see for I don't see myself as a risk for diabetes is and that's the clear indication where metformin does have some potential efficacy. So why should I take metformin, right? Now, there is accumulating evidence that metformin might be preventative for cancer. There's, again, as Peter mentioned, some epidemiological data. There's some new data on anti-inflammation, but it's not like we've you know, taken thousands of people. And there are trials, people are doing this, where we say one group gets metformin plus chemotherapy and the other group only gets chemotherapy, the standard care uh, for some particular cancer. And those studies will come out and people will do it in I know someone's trying to do this in lupus. Someone's trying to do this with TB with metformin. And as these trials come out, maybe we'll get to the point where it will look like metformin is a reasonable, safe drug which has clear anti-cancer, anti-inflammatory properties. And maybe then I'll consider taking it. But until then, I just don't see. I mean, it all the boils
4: down to what we said before. Right? Are these things helping either? you know, chubby animals in a cage or diabetics have a whole bunch of things going on. Are they going to help, you know, the Peter Achias of the world? Who knows? Right, that, that's that's what we don't, we can't tell so you. Do
2: you take
0: antioxidants?
4: A lot of people I do. do. Not. I do not.
2: Why not?
0: Um, I thought there was no, are there really good studies showing antioxidants? <laughs> no, I this. thought there wasn't, right?
4: <laughs>
0: <laughs> um, so the dietary antioxidants have uh, consistently failed on these large-scale clinical trials that I just talked about that we all like to look at. Um, so they've failed in in infectious settings, like in the intensive care unit where people are septic. Um, they've failed in cancer. If anything, in cancer, uh, people who have taken antioxidants. It seems like it increases uh, the cancer burden. So I don't think dietary antioxidants are... A, I mean, they just haven't shown over and over to have any potential uh, beneficial effects. So why would you take something that you know we've ran over and over and over? And so then the question becomes, well, oh, oh, why didn't they work? So logically, there are two reasons why they might not have worked. Right? One is that the antioxidants, the dietary antioxidants, they're just not very effective, right? The ones that are out there or in your uh, general nutric- nutrition center, they're just, you know, they're not, made properly or they're not made potent enough to do what they're supposed to do, uh, uh, right? Which is to scavenge oxidants, right? That's why they're called antioxidants. The second thing, which is much more provocative is that perhaps the theory behind oxidants, which is always that, and they're sometimes called also, people call them free radicals, is that they're bad, right? And the and one of the leading theories as to why you age and why you get cancer and why you get diabetes and why you get neurodegeneration is that you just accumulate these oxidants, these bad things called free radicals. And therefore, if you take antioxidants, you suppress them and mir- by some miracle, everybody's gonna be healthy. That just hasn't panned out. So I actually think um the second theory that that maybe this idea that oxidants are always bad is wrong. And so one of the things is that in every organism, um, um, going all the way back, from including bacteria, uh, archaea, throughout the animal kingdom, there's you can always detect the generation of these oxidants. And these oxidants are essentially hydrogen peroxide at low levels. And so nature has gone out of its way in every organism to to make proteins that get rid of these oxidants, right? They themselves have antioxidant functions. There's tons of them in every cell, but yet you can still detect them. So there must be some advantage of having- Some
2: evolutionary function.
0: Of having these little, little H202 molecules this running is not around.
2: This big soapbox.
0: right. It is my soapbox, big and, but soapbox. every and so myself and others have consistently found that these H 20 2 molecules, hydrogen peroxide, at very low levels have positive functions. For example, if you we were talking about immunity earlier, right? It, how you need a robust immune system to fight f- infection, especially as you get older. Um, like you know, my my own laboratory found that. Uh, When you activate um, uh, the immune cells, they increase the production of these oxidants. They generate more H2O2, and that H2O2 is actually necessary. You remind me, what is H2O2? Hydrogen peroxide. peroxide. Sorry, hydrogen peroxide. So they make hydrogen peroxide not just as some waste product, but they actually use that hydrogen peroxide to function as a robust immune cell. And so if you get rid of that hydrogen peroxide, that immune cell doesn't work anymore. It doesn't do what it's supposed to do, which is fight infection, right? So in other words, it's just like the rapamycin, mTOR example that David talked about, uh, you know, that Goldilocks principle of biology. <laughs> right. uh, a little bit is, is good, too much is bad. And I think this is now uh, gaining more and more acceptance in the biology community that, you know, throughout evolution we've selected to always keep a little bit of hydrogen peroxide because it has normal biological, physiological functions to maintain homeostasis. And of course, if you get to a certain threshold, it can cause damage uh, to the cells and cause cell death or
2: or, or make the cell not functional. So, so we, Peter, we were chatting about this at some point over the last couple of days, but uh, on a related point, when I was chatting with a professor who I won't mention by name because she wasn't expecting to be on the podcast, but we're discussing uh, high-dose intravenous vitamin C. And there are all sorts of clinics all over the place that do intravenous vitamin C, Although this is, uh, but the, the difference is this woman is very well-trained and doing it at an academic institution. And one thing that is done in many of these clinics that she does not do at all is a glutathione push, adding glutathione after the vitamin C, because what she emphasized to me is that the vitamin C, what someone would think of, uh, or most people would think of as an antioxidant, is actually a pro-oxidant in many respects, and she wants that pro-oxidative effect, precisely that effect, and the glutathione negates that, so that is something she does not do at her clinic. Nav, where did you grow up? Where did I grow up?
4: Yeah. You're going to get now the world tour. <laughs> and you're going to get the word Himalayas multiple times. It's so funny.
0: You know the story. You want to say? London. Born Miami, in London. Himalayan Mound. I lived there for about a year. Followed by living in the Himalayas for almost a decade. Miami. Followed by living in Miami in the 80s during the Wild Wild West. Not participating. (laughs) Not participating, too scared to see what was really going on, Uh, but did have a huge impact on me, Uh, all of those places, including Miami. And then after that, I went to the University of Chicago uh, to do mathematics uh, in the the late 80s. And then I've been in Chicago ever since because I fell in love with that city. How did you end up in Chicago?
2: Oh, because I went to the University of Chicago. No, no, no. I understand. But I mean, you're in Miami we were talking about 90s hair bands and all sorts of music from the 80s and 90s earlier. So you're rocking out.
0: Don't don't forget Freestyle as well. Yeah, Freestyle. Freestyle is one of my favorites. So I'm on now I'm on
2: record. You're sort you're of at mind. the tail end maybe or the middle point of like the Pablo Escobar. Uh you've been watching Narcos. I have been watching Narcos, yeah, but the Narcos sort of the Pablo Escobar rain and mass exportation of cocaine into Miami. Uh How did you end up doing mathematics at UChicago?
0: Oh, it was clear. So in my high school, uh, in Miami, on any given day, you walk in and all you see is, you know, on the dashboards of every car, not every car, there's a little bit of exaggeration, tons of little white lines, right? Mm -hmm. And you have a choice. Either you participate and you see perhaps some of the the end results of that and had some friends which didn't clearly have positive effects. There were more acquaintances, but one in particular was a friend. Um, or you're so scared of it, you actually use that frightened... Uh, experience of watching um what's going around you um and uh you find something that will occupy occupy your mind. Now I still have a little bit of an accent. I'm sure people can tell this. I had a pretty strong accent coming out of India, right? With the whole head bobbing and the whole deal. And so which he, he, can, <laughs> he can mimic. You should do the accent for people. Yeah, but, you know, not everybody appreciates that. Uh, I have, definitely. I have a, I have a lot of Indian listeners. Get, well, it's not an... You know what I don't like? What I love about the Indian accent is I find it quite um, a natural love. You know who can probably do the accent? It's Peter. Yeah, Peter. Well, Peter can do Bora. Yeah, you, you can do a gotta, good Borat accent. We might
2: have Peter do uh, Borat later. Yeah.
0: But, you know, I've always wondered about accent. Like, why isn't the Indian accent a sexy accent? Right? Why don't people think of that as a
2: sexy accent? <laughs> why isn't that as good as Antonio Banderas?
0: Yeah. Like, why is, <coughs> like, some dude who's got long hair? I mean, I've got long hair, you know. But, like, why... why? If I have an Indian accent versus a Latin accent, why does, you know, the Indian accent not get the love? But that's a different story. But so it was clear... Um, it was time for me to buckle down, and English wasn't going to be my strong suit. I mean, I, I can barely speak English right now. Oh, um, But, you know, what could be is math, right? And also, let's, you know, for those people who've done math, math is, is a great language. It is a language, right? Peter is a mathematician as well. Peter will, can maybe talk about this. I mean, math is a very logical, precise language. And there's something very nice about that uh, uh, and, and attaching yourself to it. Having said that, by the time I got to college, and I thought I was a pretty good mathematician, uh, math is the only subject I know you can reach a glass ceiling eventually, right? So my first year of college, got into a high math group, did okay. Second year, third year. My fourth year, I'll never forget this. There's five of us. There's, you get a uh, a math exam. It's a take-home exam. Great. Hey, you get a week to do it. Five questions. I stared it for a week. I got maybe one question done. I turned it in, feeling like I'm going to fail the class. As Afterwards, I realized one person did it in one hour, got all five right. Second person maybe did it in a few days, but got like four or something right. Another one struggled, like me, got about Two and a half, but that's a glass ceiling, right? There's nothing I could have done.
2: I Meaning, you just live, you just hit a point where if, yeah, if you're not built like it. Michael Phelps, you're not going to be an Olympic that's swimmer. That's it,
0: right? Right. And I, I, think this is a clear case of math. Uh, and also, the other thing about math is it's quite lonely. You sit by yourself. You don't, you know, because not everybody can is at the same level. Oh, biology, which I was doing just to make a little money in a hospital because they paid the best jobs. Biology is great. Because at the end of the day, it's an observational science. And we can, and David has much more insight because he's actually thought about this, is, you know, what are some of the key ingredients to, that makes a great biologist. But I would say one of the good ones is that it's an observational science, right? All four of us can be presented with a piece of data uh, and we can have four different, um, not interpretations, but four different and implications, perspectives. I mean, it's like interpre- Rashomon, right. the interpretations are interpretations. And so I always say, you know, every schmuck can get a little lucky. There's something nice about it.
2: It's the story of my life. <laughs> right, but in math? No. Not much luck involved. But as
0: David, he has much more insight about what so, makes a great So well, hold on, we're going to get back to
2: David. But how did you choose your area of focus within biology? Um, or, well, what did you choose? Like, how did you segue from math to biology? Yeah, that just doesn't seem like a hop, skip and a jump. Yeah, One so, day you're doing math, right, the next day you're right, doing right.
0: biology. So I needed some money. I worked in actually a surgery lab. They actually paid quite a bit of money. And the surgery lab had a very practical... A goal, which was to preserve organs, because it was a transplant lab, right? And Peter, who's uh, an active physician, and we talked about it and how making solutions that preserve organs before they're transplant and is a big deal and continues to be a big deal. And so it, it seemed like, well, that's an important problem, right? Hmm? You can see the implications of it, it, and so then you had to think about. Molecules, mainly metabolites, that would do that. And that got me hooked to metabolism. The other thing is um metabolism ultimately is governed by one principle, thermodynamics. It's got some equations in it. Yeah. yeah entropy, sure. enthalpy, you know, the some of the people in the audience probably recognize these terms. And you know, so they're equations. And and there's enzyme kinetics so i did a phd on enzyme kinetics i never did any of the cool stuff that most of my colleagues did which was genetics you know in genetics you it's the world of dna which was clearly in the 90s very supreme especially with the human genome project uh, by the end of the decade so it was you know it was an easy transition it's not that you know from math to doing enzyme kinetics but one of the things i realized um as i was working on metabolism that uh, the people who did metabolism and i was totally guilty of this just did metabolism for the sake of metabolism right in other words in isolated systems and and uh, and it's probably maybe too long to talk about it but the ultimate jump i made was to think about how metabolism now can regulate biology that it just wasn't a bystander, right? And, and at that time, the dogma was it's all about your genes. Or perhaps what David was discovering, which turned out to be totally true, which is it's all about uh, the, these proteins like mTOR, which are these kinases they're called. They were at the center of the action. So it was genes and kinases, and metabolism was in the background. It's always there. It gives you energy. And so the, you know, probably the only insight I've ever had in my own, you know, throughout my career was perhaps metabolism wasn't just a bystander, right? It actually was a player, just like your genes, just like the kinases. It is part of the decision-making process, whether you live, you die as a cell, or you function for immune immune functions, You you know, as a stem cell, you behave like a stem cell. And that's basically the transition.
2: So I want to, I want to... Not gonna leave you alone yet. So Peter mentioned earlier observational studies, epidemiology, correlation. Uh, this made me think of a conversation we had. It was we talked about it today, but I think the question that I asked was, What are the most important things that you teach your kids? Could you describe what you think is important?
0: Well, Peter asked me this, and then you asked me again. So (laughs) I never get it the first time. um, (laughs) I I, I have four, but thanks to Peter, I have a fifth. The fifth one, I think Peter has to explain, uh, but I definitely, uh, I've written it on my uh, iPhone notes. So the first is confidence, right? I mean, it's amazing to me how many people have fear of failure right? Including in science. and One simple example that I always see is when it comes to grants. So people like me and David rely on writing grants to the government and other agencies. And a lot of times, most of the times, you get rejected. And so you've put all your effort in trying to write this perfect little grant and papers, same thing. And the reviewers who say, no, not good enough. Now, there's two kinds of people. One person says, gee, I'm so, you know, I'm so bad. I, I don't know what to do. They go through a crisis. The other person says, you know what? Not a big deal. It's just stochastic. I just have to redo it. I take the comments and move on. It's what do you mean like, by st- stochastic? Uh, it's just there's a probability. It's, a random, yeah, it's random event. It's, you know, or, or there's a queuing or, or you know, people uh, who here, came first uh, get it first uh, and then, it's kind of like i always tell people and i've said this openly and my saying just to be cute on a podcast for me it's like, like you know if you're at a bar or you only need one at the end of the night <laughs> and, and well, how you get there uh, and and you know the males in your audience which i hear are 87 <laughs> percent apparently that's can true. relate to this, right? True fact. Either the first one says no, and then you say, oh, well, okay. Or you just, you know, you, you just keep on going. <laughs> and I've always had that attitude. And people have told me I've been crazy for a long time, and they continue to. It doesn't bother me. So I think confidence is 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 one aspect. The second one is your ability to write those grants, right? I mean, you do have to convey it in a manner. Your communicate. Your your communi- communication, to right? Because that because they only see you in a written format. So that's very important. And the third one is the ability to communicate when you give the talks. when you verbal communication so written communication and verbal communication are two and uh are are definitely uh uh, two and three what's four correlation versus causality right this drives me insane and i think this comes from the math background and so my favorite one is and everybody you go to a dinner party people especially metabolism once they find out they say i hear Eating chocolate makes me live longer. I hear eating avocados is really good. I, like, you know, I hear that and rapamycin right now is as we talked about and metformin. Sexy, Well, girl people dance. say, I heard dogs are taking rapamycin and their dogs are like doing gymnastics. Okay. And you know, wait a second, the way we do clinical trials and Peter can talk about these, you know, they have to be double blind. They have to be blinded. Some get rapamycin, some just get a Pez, you know, like a little <laughs> pill. <laughs> I mean, right? I mean... And then you have to see in a blinded fashion who did better or worse, not just us. And every single person, including my lovely mother, likes to tell me about her. She, by the way, is in great shape. And then she'll tell me, oh, I do yoga. Yoga is the key to living long. I'm like, my mom, you know, lots of people have to do yoga and not yoga who are in your age group with your demographics. I said, let's see what happens. So that's correlation versus causality. Now,
2: Things that happen at the same time or is this something that causes something else.
0: Yes. And then Peter told me a fifth one. Your ability to distinguish between absolute risk versus relative risk. And within it is something called asymmetric risk. And I will let him explain the biology of risk.
4: Are we talking about you're teaching your children or, or, or lab members?
0: But all of those four things, I've taught. I mean, Anjali, my, my, my lovely daughter, I tell her all the time correlation versus causality. A, we work on her ability to... I mean, a lot of people just obviously want good grace for their kids. That's important, but the... Things are is, simpler than that. But, but for me, it's the simple things is you got to learn how to write. You got to learn how to speak. You got to have some confidence. Instead, or confidence can be described as uh, you know not having a fear of failure. And then the other one is correlation versus causality, which, David, I think you, know, you and I take for granted, but... It is shocking how many people I know that I've come across who quite don't appreciate that last don't, concept.
2: Aren't able to distinguish between the two. How do you instill confidence? And then this risk. Oh, no, we're going to get to asymmetric risk and all good things. How do you instill confidence in your kids? So it's, We have confidence is one of the... Five one. five pillars, number one. But it was number one. No, it's number one. So number how one. how do you develop that in your kids, condition it in them, facilitate it? David is a very confident young man. Go for it.
4: <laughs> these were not, not my list. I don't think it's that hard. You just have to not care what other people think that much. I just tell my son, like, who cares? Don't be ashamed of things. If you want to do that, go ahead and do it. It's not like it's not that big a deal. If if you sort of Criticize or 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 make shameful things, then people lose confidence, right? I think I think the the way not to do it is to praise everything, right? Oh, you did that. That's fantastic. You should. Right. That's definitely not the way to do it. You let someone be original, and not criticize them when they're original.
2: That I mean Wait, explain so- that to me. So you're not you're not praising your kids all the time. So what do you, what are you doing instead of that?
4: I. You know, my, my child's young, he's six, right? And so they do a lot of wacky stuff, right? They're exploring the world and, and they get into trouble. They do new things. I try to make sure that whatever he does you know, is okay. Obviously, if he, if he does something that's hurtful to others, I try to teach him a lesson from that. But most of the things, it's okay. It's It, it can
2: be something that they can learn from rather than it be, oh, don't touch that. Could you give, you should... can you give me an example? Because so you're not praising, mm-hmm. like you're a genius, let me give you a gold star for everything, which I think makes perfect sense. Uh, well, like, like, for example,
4: I like to curse a lot. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> we all like to curse a lot. So my son, once in a while, will hear a curse. <laughs> and it turns out that once in a while, he'll use them, actually, quite appropriately. <laughs> and certain people in my family will quickly try to shut him down. Okay, and say, this is inappropriate, you shouldn't be saying that, those are bad words. My approach is, look, That's a word. It's okay to use it once in a while when you have certain feelings. It's an appropriate word to use. It's a word you shouldn't use all the time and maybe you shouldn't use it around all people. But it's okay. So it's not a criticism. It's like saying you are still a young thing and you're still learning what is the best approach to life. But what you just said is an okay feeling to have. And in fact, I I actually don't like people who don't curse. I don't trust people who don't curse. It just shows a falseness. Because everyone at some point. Wants to just say wants fuck. Wants to say fuck you, right? <laughs> or a bunch of other fantastic words. And so why should I tell a young thing who, who's learning from me that that this is completely wrong? It just seems like an absurd type of thing. So that's one obvious example. Probably so, will get so, me in what, trouble. So what else, is on <laughs> but, your,
2: what else is on your list, David?
4: I should say my son did once when I asked him different letters. He did say A is for asshole, <laughs> which is really not a great <laughs> thing. And okay. Did he do that in school? No, no, he did it with me. I was like, look, don't
5: don't
0: do that one. Don't in do, do that. In do, do Apple said, instead. Okay. <laughs> that in school and they called you in. How would you explain that to the teacher? I would tell them that the I think same
4: cursing thing? is good once in a while and that he's learning. And that why should I shame him into using words that that have but, a potential use? He just I, needs to
0: learn when to use them appropriately. That's all. But what the key point that David hit on is this idea of failure, right? You only learn by failing. Right? You gotta work things out. Be original or unoriginal or whatever you can put the definition, but you have to fail in order to succeed. I mean, this is such a cliche, but today there is so little room to fail because parents view their kids
2: as a as a um, vicarious reliving of their. Right, lives.
0: Well, it's not only the reliving as a judgment about their parenting.
2: Mm-hmm. Oh, Johnny cursed.
0: Well, therefore. David must curse a lot. Well, David does curse, you know, but so what, right? I mean, there's this correlation. And, what was that? It's a true statement. <laughs> a, in your case, but you know what I'm saying? So I, for, for me, confidence has to come from, um, um, you know, a, a healthy dose of failure and being actually comfortable with failure. And the other one is being comfortable with conflict which is another thing that gets whitewashed all the time, right? Right? Like, not conflict, like physical conflict, but the ability to just banter. I mean, one of the reasons I really appreciate my, uh, my relationship with David is there's plenty of discourse, as you you prob- talk so fucking oh, much. Here we go. <laughs> you here talk so much. Here we go. Uh, uh, you know. No, no, went can from I being say- charming earlier in the interview? Because oh, I didn't realize you, you would- talks too much. You talk so much
4: no. So, but um, but the, the the failure one. Actually, you know, one thing though, just about science, right? People tend to think that scientists are some of these sort of perfect beings that design experiments, do them, I mean, and you? implement them. What? And then they met you. No, but, but I think what they don't realize is that most good science comes only after a massive amount of failure. And that massive amount of failure is required to do good science, right? If, if you're actually not failing a lot of science, it means you're not being adventurous. It means you're doing incredibly safe things that you could actually predict, right? And this is the ridicul- ridiculousness of our granting system, is you write things in a way as there's no possibility of failure with right. backup plans right. and these
2: other ideas
4: and this So hypothesis. you need to that... think
2: incrementally to get the proper to get grants. The money.
4: But all of us try to do things that hopefully are gonna be really new, but that means that most of the ideas that we have are wrong. They're just plain wrong. You have these beautiful ideas, and it turns out that Mother Nature decided that that wasn't the answer. But it's okay, right? And so, but that's the hardest thing for young scientists, is that they go in with a certain kind of idea and they do experiments, and they're wrong. And they do another experiment, and it's wrong. And 10 times in a row, it's wrong. And so for me, when I, you know, I think the things that make a good scientist and good child are actually quite similar. To me, that capacity to get up and keep going. We have a bartender singing in the background. That's okay. Continue. <laughs> is, um, is actually the, the one of the most important properties you can have a scientist. Because you, the most thing you, fail, you face is actually failure.
2: What what advice do you give to your the students in your lab or the people in your lab when they come to you for say career advice? What's what's the most common atypical advice that you give them?
4: If it's atypical, because I think we're all at good places that people tend to, I think do things fairly well. T- to me, it's pretty simple: just do something new. Like, th- th- if in science you just do two things, you will make a major discovery. If you do something new. And you do something that's true. That's all you have to do to make a major discovery. Because if it's true, biology reuses it in many, many different things. The problem is that most things that people do are not new; they're derivatives of what's been done already, with some variation. And sadly, in many cases, they're not even true because they're you just mean not. They're just not well done experiments. I get right. experiments that they're just sloppy. They're sloppy, and it's noise, or it's not. One of the biggest issues in science now is that things are not generalizable. They'll do something in one system. And it may give an answer. And then that's sort of extrapolated to being true in many, many different systems. Well, it's not. It happens to be a little idiosyncratic uh, case. So if you simply try to do something new, so that's what I tell my people. If you come to me and say, look, I read this paper and I want to do what's
2: predicted by this paper, like, I hate you. That guy, it's the worst thing you could and possibly Can do can, you, can you share your 1 to 10 rating system? Oh, the ass crack factor. But that's that's for data actually. Oh, okay. So wait,
4: what's the ass crack rating system? That that's just so so um I have a strong aesthetic sense. So I like data to be pretty. Which which is kind of ridiculous because all it has to be is really true and reproducible. It doesn't actually have to be pretty. And some scientists actually what makes data pretty. Well, that, that you know it's it's symmetrical, that that if it's an image, it's you know skinny. it has the right killer color not skinny symmetrical I mean we do a lot of things called western band, Western blots where there's little oh I know western blots little, from right, my busy. So, right so little black bands I like them to be about the same shape and the same intensity I don't want. what they just want them to look pretty
0: size what <laughs>
4: Size?
0: No, no
3: but... Wait how, how is it that you were ripping on me for the staple thing? Wait,
4: hold on. We're going to yeah, get to, we're, we're to
3: Peter's staples.
4: Hold on. I'm tell not. About... But I, I'm very but, anal about these things. Okay, so tell... So no, like, no, so, so if, like, people start in them. the lab. The first few experiments they do have what I call a high ass crack factor, which is basically that the data is not aesthetically pleasing. It might be true, but I will not put my name on a paper with that data. So it might start at ashcrack ten, which is the worst, or seven, or something like that. And I always tell them get it to ashcrack three. Ashcrack three is about the threshold that I'll tolerate. Ideally, you know, crack one is what you want. So, so David, all right,
0: I'm so, send you some
4: data so, so soon. No, you you have a lot of ashcrack data, but my <laughs> lab does not. If you look at my papers uniformly we have beautiful people. pretty
2: pretty data <laughs> beautiful data and actually reviewers always comment on that. miss universe data so peter how should people staple properly and what is the what are the origins of this particular focus
3: well first of all this is one of the few things where the answer is known right so i mean so much of what we're talking about now i mean should we be taking rapamycin you know probably at what dose not clear intermittent, likely, right? How do you staple a piece of paper? That is, I mean, we know that, like we know what happens if you drop an apple from a tree. So uh, the first thing that's essential is the paper has to be um, lined up perfectly. So you can't have like 10 pages stapled together where they're not aligned obviously, right? So if one's off by like half a millimeter, something that's totally unacceptable. So the second thing is you always have to staple upper left corner and it has to be a vertical staple. So a lot of people do this goofy sort of diagonal staple or some nonsense, even a horizontal staple. It's totally unacceptable. So it has to be a vertical staple. The next thing that's super important, the third factor is that the upper corner of the vertical staple must be equidistant from the top edge of the page and the left edge of the page, and the ideal distance, What's the pro- yeah, proper distance, yeah, proper distance is about seven millimeters. But I would say, because I'm an engineer first, maybe mathematician second, I think it's okay to have a, a plus or minus on that. So I really think we're talking about six millimeters plus or minus two, um, and and so when you do so, because if you go too close to the left edge. Or too close to the upper edge, such that you've lost that equidistance, you run the risk of tearing the staple through the vertical. And again, I know some of the people are listening to this, and they're just thinking, "I can't believe I'm wasting time listening to this." But I, I will tell you this: you do this, you fold your papers over, and you tell me that that's not honestly the best thing in the world, the best feeling. Oh, I'm, I'm going to grab the mic here for a second.
2: No, hold on. Now, who would you convey this to? And what else would you convey to them? What were the other <laughs> the other tenets <laughs> of uh, functioning under the iron fist rule of idea?
3: <laughs> I mean, this really... I think I've always had these tendencies. Uh, I think my... Yeah, I think I've always been this way. But it flourished at... Um, I worked at McKinsey & Company uh, for a while. And I was... I just found that it was a culture that really enabled that tendency, the obsession with fonts, spacing, stapling, clipping, like how you could make everything perfect. And I'll tell a funny story, right? So I had a team of folks that worked for me maybe in a previous life, I forget, like at a biotech company I think that I was working at many years ago. And they used to really kind of get annoyed with my tendencies, right? Of like, I mean, there was just no, there was no stone left unturned. And I felt a little vindicated when someone who worked at that company went up to present something at Pixar one day and came back and said, you know, Peter, it's sort of interesting. I used to sort of think you were an idiot for this obsession. But interestingly, at Pixar, when they storyboard, they have a very particular way that they do things, which is they put the pieces of paper up and they all have these clear thumbtacks and it has to be four thumbtacks on each piece of paper. Each is one centimeter down, one centimeter over from the corner and they do this thing. And so the friend of mine who saw this said, "My my question for the person in the room leading this session was, you know, isn't Pixar one of the most creative companies in the world? How can you guys be so dogmatic about this one issue? And the person said, well, because we're so creative, we never want there to be a distraction in the room when we're undergoing our creative process which is reviewing the storyboard and i don't think up until that point i don't think i'd been able to understand why i'm so obsessive about what seems like nonsense but if i'm looking at a document i don't want to be distracted by the staple being diagonal or the font being crappy or the spacing being off or any of those things what are your, what are
2: your favorite fonts and sizes and why
3: well, up until medical school, I um, never, I refused to work with a word processor. So I only used a system called LaTeX, which is spelled L-A-T-E-X. It's spelled like LaTeX. Uh, so we start, and Nav knows what I'm talking about, because any math idiot would have gone through this. So, I think
0: Tim knows about LaTeX as
3: well. Do you know about LaTeX as well? Yeah. So we use tech or LaTeX. And so you were- Oh, I right- meant
0: he knows about LaTeX. <laughs>
3: <laughs> no comment. <laughs> So, uh, um, yeah, so you write this code into a compiler and then you would create a format after it. And so the font in LaTeX that I found far and away the most elegant was called Roman. Um, So this was a serif font. Um, And then eventually it got to the point where you just couldn't share documents with anybody because people just wanted to use Word. And so I finally caved. Uh, Obviously, Word doesn't have exceptional fonts. Um, but you know, I think there are a handful of fonts that are like borderline acceptable. Um, frankly, these days, my serif font of choice is actually times new Roman as pathetic as that sounds on the sans serif side. I like, um, um, probably the last couple months. Cause I switch every once in a while, there's a, a myriad pro condensed version that I'm working with that i i find reasonable um i actually did font research one summer which i we won't talk about that <laughs> have you seen a documentary called helvetica <laughs> i i have and i'm i i actually find helvetica lt45 to be a pretty decent font what
2: so what uh, comic Sans? so wait no we're gonna get to comic Sans. So, so so my so, so my do- my font of choice is verdana 11 long story <laughs> but like so comic sans I love that one.
0: That's all my talks are in Comic songs. No, they're not. That's so, no, it's it's so unacceptable. Sounds. I made that... I was making
3: fun of you. Dude, that's... Dude, that's true. That's pathetic. You know what well, that yeah. says? You know what that says? Yeah. It says, I don't care. I'm a child. It says, you're in the audience, and I want to visually insult you. I want you, you think I'm to entitled? suffer. Are you suggesting <laughs> I'm
0: entitled? This Is, is this an entitlement yeah, lecture? It, could
3: be. it actually could be turned into, my data are so good that I... Can actually insult you while presenting this and no. you're still going to sit here and look at this comic Copy sans
4: <laughs> <laughs> i use trebuchet for talks but i use we use helvetica so in my lab you better make figures well that means helvetica for the figures i you know that's the, for the paper for the paper no 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 i'm talking for no, no, no,
0: talks no. i don't use comic sans in the paper i hope not <laughs>
4: but you know what i can't stand when oh. people make figures in in powerpoint that's horrible Like, you have to make them an illustrator. Right, Peter? You need to draw an Adobe Illustrator if you're going to make a
0: figure.
3: Yes, although for those... For the paper. Yeah, for... No, he's
0: talking about for presentations. No, for the paper, I completely agree with you. You shouldn't draw anything in PowerPoint.
3: No, no, there's a really cool plugin for PowerPoint called ThinkCell, which is not for uh, drawing, but it's for actually doing way better graphics. So you don't have to import from Excel
0: people use prism usually in time,
3: yeah, Think we, cells pretty solid. Yeah, yeah.
0: No, for papers I completely agree with David, but my verbal presentations might be your 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 fonts to.
2: are like for the visually impaired, right? The, well, you're the, pretty visually impaired. But they're like ridiculous. you can barely see. I
0: mean, you know.
2: so actually no no, so I'm going to have a couple glasses of wine so David uh you, you don't have fantastic vision. I used to until about a year ago. Why don't you have glasses?
4: Because if I get glasses, I think that it'll, I'll be completely dependent on them. And then you have to carry these things No,
2: around. explain what you mean by that. It means that... The- what happens if you put on glasses? Because now... No, no so I tried someone's glasses. I, I know Nav is sort of chafing your nuts about this, but you also decided not to have glasses. Yeah, but I'm not visually impaired like but him. i
4: not He's blind. That's not true. When I'm tired, it's harder to read things. You put... Look at the font size on your iPhone. Look at that. No, no, the other one. <laughs> so, so, the, 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 no, so, so I just think that once you start wearing glasses, you know, your lenses, whatever compensation you're doing for the shape of your lenses with your ocular motor muscles will all stop and you're completely dependent on it. And the idea that then you can't see anything where, where you really can't see anything and you need glasses is kind of scary for me. Where you have to have, you have them with you You
2: more muscularly...
4: Well, I think you... I don't dependent. remember now, but you, you really you don't Physiologically whatever dependent on the glasses completely <laughs> right and and i've been certainly told by by ophthalmologists that this is true so i talked to ophthalmologists. look i can put you on glasses but you'll be 100 percent dependent on them in a couple of months
0: do you think you'll lose your sex appeal <laughs> <laughs>
2: i'm talking about but that's it's, it's more you have to carry something so all right i'm gonna get this right back on the rails or do my best to do that uh what? Uh, how do you guys think of? Because a lot of people ask me about this basis, the product basis by a company called Elysium? Either not.
0: Nah.
2: He's your colleague.
4: I, I, I don't. I think these are territories that one should be very careful about. I think that you know. I think their goal is to eventually look at this nutraceutical market and do things of high quality. Um, I think there's some basis for NAD boosting, it, it, as connected to aging. I think there's been a number of papers that have shown defects in NAD. Whether that product has an impact or not, I, I actually ha- have no idea. And I have—I I should say I have no position on it. You're the NAD, NADH person, right? I have a
0: clear position on it. Again, it goes back to why I don't take metformin, right? I told you why. Hey, if I am a diabetic or a pre-diabetic, I would consider taking metformin and because We've done large-scale clinical trials for that. Now we're doing large-scale clinical trials for people uh, for cancer uh, and perhaps for anti-aging in a, in a big, large aging trial. And until you do that for NAD, uh, you know, it's another interesting molecule. But not, there's got
4: to gotta be a lot of things you do that are not based on a clinical trial, though.
0: That's,
2: that was one of my questions I, that I might follow
0: in up In terms of taking a drug, I personally don't. And do you? I mean, do you take anything? I mean, once in a while, I'll take a vitamin, I guess, but... I don't take any vitamin. I don't take anything. I mean, but again, a lot of people would... I think this is what Dave is alluding to, and perhaps uh, Peter can talk about it. Uh, uh, Do you wait for large-scale clinical trials until you take a supplement or a drug? So... I think and I don't I have I don't know any um firsthand knowledge of it, but what I've read, I think it was a New Yorker article, no New York magazine about Elysium, they sort of argued, they pushed back on this idea. Well, you know, maybe it's too you know, you can't wait to do these clinical trials. How do you do it? It's an aging trial. We're talking about NAD supplements, Peter. Like basis. Um, and so I you know, I I just think um even if you didn't do the clinical trial, let's say, I would at least like to know the biology of NAD. I would, and I think this is a fair statement, and I'm happy to challenge anybody out there on this one. I think, thanks to David, we know not only David, but but largely, you know, David clearly is a pioneer in this. We have a pretty good idea of what mTOR does, right? I mean, we have a reasonable as, as things go in biology, right? We know the inputs, you know, what activates or not activate mTOR. We have a reasonable idea what mTOR itself then, you know, what turns it on and what does mTOR turn on, right? right? With NAD, it's not so clear. I think it's actually a great part of biology that people like me and David and many of our colleagues are quite interested in. What the hell does NAD do? And if anybody's gonna tell me what it does, as in they think they know it, you know, you can look me up and come to Chicago and I'll buy you dinner so you can explain it to me. Because I've thought a
2: lot about what NAD does. So so this is, this is a good question for Peter since he and I both consume copious amounts of legitimate and probably partially illegitimate compounds for dubious purposes and sometimes scientifically sound objectives peter what's your what are your thoughts on when it how do you run the calculus on when to take a given compound because there are certain it seems to me as a relatively scientifically illiterate layperson uh but someone who tries very hard that there are some studies that are just not going to get funded and then there are studies that may get funded, but the results could take five, ten or more years to come in. In the meantime, if, say, for instance, you are me, Tim Ferriss, and you have uh, neurodegenerative disease on both sides of your family, pretty much everyone, uh, having a head start of five or ten years could mean quite a lot. So how do you run the calculus on when to take something or not?
0: By the way, we didn't touch upon this, was but I think you can squeeze this in with this discussion, which is about asymmetric risk right this is this is an example by the to the audience. I actually learned a great concept this week, which I sort of intuitively know knew about, but thanks to Peter, who beautifully stated this over and over, and I think he's going to give an example of what asymmetric risk uh means by telling us when you should take a particular drug or a supplement and when not to, right?
3: Yeah, I mean, I do think a lot about this concept of asymmetric risk, I guess, just to sort of define it. I think it's self-explanatory, right? But it, it's it's generally a situation where the risk of um, not doing something or doing something can be far in excess to its opposite, right? So... so the, Talk about our
2: caves.
3: Yeah, it came up so many times today. What was the most recent... Oh, that's right, that's right. So today we're on a on a hike and Easter Island, of course, being formed by volcanoes is basically just an enormous set of volcanic rocks, and so there's these really cool caves. And so our guide was taking us to this cave inlet and it was basically just a I don't know, twenty five foot drop down and it had a tree with one branch that you had to sort of shimmy down the branch that you would at the midway point get some support of looked like it could break at any second and uh he was like hey do you guys want to go down there and i think it looked pretty cool but i the sort of the
4: scientist wanted to go though
3: yeah that yeah. was the funny part yeah and my thought was "Eh, you mean to go down to go down yeah yeah exactly go down yeah yeah and i was like eh. you're good at going down right <laughs> Bad idea to do this podcast with alcohol. Um, so so the point here was, what was the upside of going down? The upside was you got to get inside you the get cave. Box, you get box lunches usually. The downside was that branch breaks and or you slip, you break your ankle, you're stuck on Easter Island. It's a miserable day. So I just decided that the... That missing the opportunity to go down that cave, which would be a cool story for me at that moment, wasn't worth the risk of the injury. So that, that's asymmetric risk.
2: So David, uh, I have a question for you, which is, <clears throat> you're talking about your lifespan goal of 600 before you get hit by a, the hypersonic bus that will exist at such a point in time. <laughs> if you are not taking rapamycin, how are you going to get to 600? Yeah, I, I, let's, let's clarify. I said I
4: wouldn't mind. Right. Well, many people said they would be sad. They see their loved ones die. All this stuff. I don't have any illusions. I thought, like when I was younger, that people would solve the aging question by now, but but clearly, th- clearly things have gone much slower than I would have imagined. And even things like rapamycin would give you maybe thirty percent. Who knows, right? So, which I always find quite interesting is that, given the fact that it does have these profound effects, there's still you know, there's still a lot more to go, right, in terms of what actually happens. So, I have no plans right now, Tim, for that. I, I have no good idea.
2: At what point would you start taking rapamycin? Is there any given trigger or observation in your own life that would lead you, aside from a large scale, you know, randomized controlled trial that would definitively show intermittent dosing of rapamycin delivers X benefit?
3: Would, would anything that comes out of Matt's experiments convince you? The dog one? Yeah. I, I think if the dog ones, and I don't know what the dosing
4: regimen they're doing, but the dog ones show an impact. M- my biggest fear is that it's not going to have a big
3: impact in free living, relatively healthy animals. That's, that's my biggest fear. That's a lousy fear. That just basically says there's not enough upside. The big fear should be, is there a hidden downside we don't see? And my view is that's a risk I'm willing to take because the upside is so high, right?
2: 30%.
3: Yeah. Although we, we have no idea what the downside is. Zero zero data. So so the question, the question, the, the mental model here is the following: Is taking rapamycin picking up a penny in front of a bulldozer? Is it picking up a penny in front of a tricycle? Is it picking up a gold coin in front of a bulldozer or a gold coin in front of a tricycle? I think every intervention has to be viewed through that lens. Now, metformin to me is either. Picking up a penny or maybe a gold coin in front of a tricycle. I just think the downside of Metformin is so low. I think Metformin that, or Rapamycin? Metformin. I'm, I'm using and I Metformin. Think most as an people example. agree with you, right? Yeah. Yeah. So that's why I don't understand why Nav isn't taking it. Um, but that's that's it's probably because he's too busy looking at comics, songs, font nonsense. Um now Rapamycin's different, right? I think the challenge now, so first of all, I'm convinced Rapamycin is a gold coin. So we're not dealing with pennies anymore. The question is, is it a gold coin in front of a tricycle in which it's a no-brainer, or is it a gold coin in front of a bulldozer, in which case it's worth doing, but you have to then, what do we talk about on asymmetric risk? You have to come up with ways to bracket the risk. You have to come up with early warning indicators of, is this going to be bad? And I think that's the reason I'm not yet taking rapamycin, but I mean, I bug David about this all the time. Because the
0: mouth sores.
3: no, the mouth Source don't phase me because no, you stopped it, the drugs. Right? It's the unknowns, right? Stuff we don't know that it, I think is the much it bigger doesn't have
0: issue. a 30-year history of people using it. Yeah, like knows, it, it, could,
3: it
4: could give you cardiac disease. So, but I mean, to me, the most interesting use of rapamycin would be that you could do like a rapamycin holiday. And what I mean by that is you'd go somewhere and take like a two-week treatment rapamycin, maybe every six months or maybe once a, spa. a year. Yeah, rapamycin spa. We're talking about maybe you do it on holiday. And if that would do the cleaning out. This is how I treat fasting.
2: Yeah. Exactly. Right. I'm doing right. one so long it's a, fast per quarter.
4: Right. So if it's a chemical-based way of doing fasting, that I would strongly consider doing. The idea of having another pill that, I mean, I don't have any pills now, but if I had to have a pill to remember, I know it, it seems like one needs a mind a little bit like yours where you're, my life I think is more scattered than yours in terms of think, <laughs> I got to take this, did I not take it. It seems a lot. Uh, so- it is
2: really laziness. So, this is going to seem like a complete non sequitur, and it is a complete non sequitur. But since we mentioned it earlier, Peter, could you do a brief Borat for us of your choice? The man (laughs) and the horse. Uh,
1: In Kazakhstan, uh, we say that uh, a horse is uh, like a man. Uh, If a horse is uh, sad, yeah. is uh, like if a man is a uh, sad and if a horse is a uh, happy you know happy is uh, like if a man is a uh, happy and uh, if a horse is a uh, a uh, tall is tall is like if a man is a uh, tall uh, in Kazakhstan we say if a horse is a uh, have foot is a uh, like if a man is a have foot. So a horse is like a man. What is a horse like usually? Uh, I mean, uh, you know, in, in Kazakhstan, you cannot uh, go to a girl's father and uh, trade cans of insecticide. You must do something called the dating
3: I'm not going to say that.
2: <laughs> pieces of paper being passed around. So, so the man is a like a horse is from just to be for those people want to look it up. It's from a, uh, a bit that Borat did where he's at an equestrian event talking to this. Sasha Baron Cohen. Sarah, Sasha Baron Cohen talking to this poor woman who just tolerates these. Go to YouTube. What should they search? A horse is like a man, this poor woman listens to like three minutes of it so i so Peter, why are you so good at bora
3: actually can
2: can you can you tell the o oh, r story, please? the texts that would get sent to us. So.
3: yeah, so back in the day, we used these alphanumeric pagers, and you could either type directly into this them was the, this is at Hopkins, yeah, or you could go on. Onto, like, there was a server on the website, and you could actually just manually type in. And if your message was too long after X characters, it would get truncated, and you'd have multiple, you know, page one of two, page two of two, whatever. And so, the first time I saw the horses like a man, I sat in front of my DVD and I typed them. This is, you know, typed all of them up just so I could know every single one off by heart. There were like 20 of them. And then I would cut and paste it into the browser and text all of my buddies with it when they were in the OR and it would get broken. Yes, the operating room. And it would get broken into like six pages. And what happens when you get all these text pages is the nurse in the OR starts reading them to you out loud. And so my friends, As you're would, performing that's right. So my friends would get these pages that would say, but of course, the nurse who you know probably had a Filipino accent instead of the Kazakhstan accent that Borat mimics would just be reading these things out and it didn't make any sense. And it was like, uh, you know, Dr. Ferris, uh, you have a text here from Dr. Atiyah, it says that if a horse is tall, it is like if a man is tall. And if a horse is happy, it is like if a man is happy and she would just proceed to read all of this. And uh, I think that's probably some of the story I shouldn't have just told. <laughs> we'll edit that a, one out. That's a Tim Ferriss exclusive, folks. <laughs> you heard it here first. It'll be a Hopkins
2: <laughs> retroactive so, investigation. <laughs> so we're, we're going to shift gears a little bit. Uh these are rapid fire questions that doesn't necessitate a rapid fire answer so don't worry about it. He Nob's cannot do rapid fire answers. Right? Face. You can't do No a, no no answers. no, he can do rapid fire questions. He can He can't offer do rapid fire answers. answers. Which is fine. The first is most gifted books. Uh now what book or books have you gifted most other people? I usually
0: uh, like to give at least younger people um siddhartha by herman hess why is that it's a nice book about a journey um of an evolution of a young man um young boy teenager young man into an adult and that transition i still struggle with and uh, so it's a good read all the time it's a I, short
2: book too That's the real key.
0: Could use a few more pictures, but generally, it's...
2: this. And for those people listening, uh, Siddhartha, and I mentioned this earlier when we were chatting, is probably in the top five or six most frequently given answers to this question. Uh, Josh Waitzkin, Naval Ravikant, there is a pretty long list. So for those who haven't read it, I think that is a... So it's not original then? (laughs)
0: <laughs> no, I'm not I, know that. I actually I'm I don't I'm know who those, those people. people are. It's a classic. <laughs> I'm no, but is- it, it, it. You
2: know, I've actually,
0: uh, I, it, I, I read it uh, maybe twenty-five years ago, and it, it struck. But I come from that world anyway, so maybe I was programmed a little bit. For me, you know, the experience is more important than the end goal and i think that's one of the messages of that book you know you collect experiences rather than objects and other things and so it's about the journey and the experience rather than um just ploughing through it and getting to the to the end so
2: so called objective just never the end right? right what about you david i tend to <clears throat> like historical
4: fiction um Me and too. so some of the books that I've liked a lot and have given others have been Gore Vidal books. Like Gore Vidal? Gore Vidal. Yeah, like Lincoln or Burr. You know, so they're, they're American history, history, historical fiction. So, you know, got a lot of true history. So I like history, but they're a little bit, I don't know, there's a little bit of creative license taken with them.
2: What do you hope the recipients will get out of those books. You know,
4: I don't think I've thought about it as deeply as Nav has. I, 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 for me, anything that I read or watch has to not bore me. That's been the number one yeah, criterion number for criteria. me. And I find them fun to read and that you also learn something from them. And I think in his case, they tend to also be very nicely written. It's so, Corvidal. Uh,
0: Corvidal. What does that mean, nicely written? How do you define something nicely written? That the, the sentences
4: are interesting, right? That there's perhaps more style. Like, for example, the, the sentences I like the most are kind of New Yorker type sentences, although they can drive you crazy. I like, I actually like long sentences that are incredibly well-crafted, so there's no confusion out of them. Some of the New Yorker ones are like crazy, but like when you look at them, you're like, they're quite masterful. Some aspects of that. I also like when there's a variation in sentence structure, so it's not one type of style. You like Salman Rushdie? I don't know if I've read much. I mean, there was it was, was Satanic? Was that the, the, Satanic the first? Is, yeah, I think I tried reading that one. I, I don't know if I read much more um, of his. I mean, lately I've been more on that historical. You like I've his been... ex-wife? <laughs>
0: <laughs> you met her, right? You met her? I met her once on a Top Chef filming. Yeah. For, for a well, she's Indian. That's the only reason I brought it up.
5: <laughs>
4: um, anyhow, No. So I sometimes read sort of more like Roman historical fiction or, or American historical fiction. Yeah. No. So it's a one-track
2: mind. <laughs> so, so, Nav, if you could Dude, put... If, if, you had a, if, you had a, if you had a huge billboard, or could have a huge billboard anywhere, what would you put on it? What would it say? I like women. Don't smoke. <laughs>
3: Don't smoke. It's a public health. All right. Wait, wait. Speaking of don't smoke, did you ever see it was this was on Twitter like about two months ago. It was a great Thank billboard. Yeah, That's true. What am I talking about? Yes. It was well, it. It was actually a really There's it was no a really Twitter it was just probably world. one of the best billboards I've ever seen. It was um, a Canadian like anti-smoking campaign and it was a pro quote unquote pro smoking billboard sponsored by a funeral house. And it was like a fake funeral house. The funeral house was actually like this not-for-profit. I think it was anti-smoking. And I, of course, I'm not doing it justice. Because I don't remember exactly what it said, but it was like certainly top 10 billboards I've ever seen.
2: What would you put on your billboard, David?
4: Um, I think I might put like uh, either of two things. Something like an interesting artwork, something that was really pretty to look at, but depending on what the background was, or like a, like make it seem like there was like a forest or something
2: that started like there. So, forest. All right. So, we we chatted a little bit about this. uh, But if you were, thank you, Peter. If if you had to give a TED talk on a topic outside of what you're known for or a subject area, what would it be? And I know I'm cheating a little bit because we chatted about this.
4: I mean, the thing that I like a lot besides science is like plants and gardens. So, I'd probably have to do something around that, but probably. More about why I like it, rather than any kind of deep knowledge of it, because I think my why do you do it? Why do I like it? Yeah, why I... do you like it? I mean, a couple of reasons. I think. And what type of plants? Okay, so I I um I don't like flowers. I mean, there are some flowers I like more more because of the aroma, but I don't get like attracted by a, a rose. I, I like plants that have like interesting bark or leaves on them, and they're a little bit different than than others. I just like how they look and I like the fact that they're calm and sort of intelligent in some way. I've always liked like Japanese gardens. I know you spent a lot of time in Japan. That that has always inspired me. There's a certain piece about a garden that I don't get ever from like people or other stuff. Besides like this freak show here. right? <laughs> there, there's something very peaceful about a garden that I've always, I've always really wanted to be able to spend time to create a garden that I would really like. I don't have time and I have a tiny, I live in an expensive place, so I have a tiny little garden. So I tend to collect somewhat strange plants. Like what? Like, for example, there's one that I like a lot, which actually I saw, I think I saw one here as we were driving around. Um, it's called the monkey puzzle trees from Patagonia. It's a monkey puzzle tree. That's what it's called. It's it's incredible. Of, I, think it's kind of, I think it's Latin name is Araucaria Araucaria actually, which is, it's actually related to Norfolk pine, which you also see around. It's a tree that has these sort of spikes on it. We Were we in Glasgow together once? We went to the botanical garden there and I, I showed it to you. That was someone else. No. Anyways, I, I like trees a little bit different from where I live. It goes complete, completely against this trend of trying to go native, right? So I, I should be getting New
2: England wildflowers, but it's not the That's type what you meant by <laughs> native.
5: <laughs>
2: <laughs> so, uh, so what about you, Naf? If you were going to teach, or not teach, rather, but give a, a TED Talk on... Something outside of the subject area or areas you're known for, what would it be on? I think um,
0: it would be on um, the concept, and and maybe it's a cliche, but I don't think it is. Uh, The idea that every relationship you enter into, the premise should be mutual beneficial. So some people argue, you know, I am altruistic, right? That implies it's only one way. Some people say I'm selfish. That applies the other spectrum. And I think both of those are not at least healthy. So I'm arguing against, clearly against uh, um, selfishness, which is obvious maybe to people. But the other one is altruism, right? And I think the best ones are mutual beneficial, right? And that's something... Maybe it's cliche, maybe it's obvious, but I think if you think about it, most of us uh, are taught to think about one or the other, right? So the goody two-shoes are all like, oh, I need to be altruistic, oh, it's all about you, not me. And the selfish people are like, well, you know, me being a little selfish allows me to create interesting things and make the world eventually better. But I think within any given situation, there are ways to do both. Uh, and uh, David and I have talked about it, just how we run our own labs, right? And David can speak about this much more eloquently since it's late at night. But I think I think the concept of mutual beneficial is something that I talk about openly with my people in my lab or people in general. I think it's a concept that is an important concept that... Uh, perhaps is obvious but maybe needs to be explicitly stated
2: so so let's segue to something i view as maybe related which was a conversation we had uh on the beach yesterday in fact
0: it's not clear how this podcast is mutually beneficial (laughs) wait a second (laughs) what
2: what do you mean helps me but it doesn't help you (laughs) You can ask for anything you I'm want. Joking, this is like I'm a joking. this is like a genie bottle that you can no, rub. Right. And actually, ask this for is mutually beneficial,
0: right? Because you have your podcast, and I'm just having a good time, so I am benefiting from having That's a good a nice time.
2: Nice wine. <laughs> so <laughs> so we, we were chatting yesterday, and I observed, and not to claim that I know David very well, but I I said, well, you know, you know, David, Peter, and I tend to run pretty hot. Um, not a bad I mean, thing. you guys are oh, hot guys? Meaning we're we're ready for the uh Thunder from Down under auditions. No, that means that we're we're a little are uh, we just we, we run hot temperamentally. And I asked you, have you always been this even-keeled? Because you seem very even-keeled and very calm in most circumstances I've observed you in. Uh could you Perhaps repeat and elaborate on your answer.
0: So I would say till the age of twenty-two, no, not at all. And I found myself quite unhappy, and actually very unhappy at one point. And I sort of pulled, uh, just to be funny here, uh, I pulled what's called one of the one of my great shows, Seinfeld, George Costanza. So if people remember George Costanza. Uh In a Seinfeld episode, like nothing was working for him, right hey, like he was just like and one day he decided i'm gonna do everything opposite right hey, and you know I say this in a joking way, but I did i used to i mean as you can tell i'm you know I've gotten older, we'll probably lose my hair eventually you've um, got you've got quite a bit of hair but right I've now. got quite a bit of hair right and i I always had it a little bit on the long side but if you take up pictures from my high school college. As a kid, up till 22, I had very, very short hair. As my lovely wife likes to say, oh, you had the Dunkin' Donut Boy haircut. (laughs) She she describes it as, and then, you know, I just for whatever reason said, you know what? I'm gonna grow my hair long. Like That's just one example. I mean, it's a very superficial example. Uh, And so... After that, literally, I, I did many things diff- opposite from what I used to do, and uh, slowly, it it just I got to this point.
2: What were what was the catalyzing moment or conversation or dinner, whatever it was, at twenty two? Like, why did you change your ways? What was the the what was the the setting or the moment or anything?
0: I, it was nothing
2: in particular. It was just simply
0: that I was. Um. Not a. I was unhappy with what I was doing, and what were
2: you doing at 22?
0: I mean, I was. I mean, superficially, I was doing all the right things, but internally, I was unhappy. Right. I mean, look, when you're an immigrant, and Peter's also an immigrant, he can relate to it. It. You have your family that comes from a different country has expectations that are expectations based on like you're still back in your own homeland right it, but you haven't grown up there since the age of 10 essentially and now you're 22 so you spend actually more time in the united states and you feel like much more of an american at some level of course you still retain certain key aspects of of your indian heritage your himalayan indian heritage and so there's that in there's that internal conflict and how you settle that and from that internal conflict probably create some sort of uneasiness and unhappiness, lack of confidence, perhaps even, and insecurity. And either you just stay in that perpetual state, and I know plenty of immigrants, and Peter can probably also comment on this, was stay in that perpetual insecurity of not knowing where they belong, or you start to make some firm decisions. And and I started to do that. Uh, and one of them was that, you know, this isn't working for me, whatever I was doing. And there was just that anger about not, am I Indian? Am I American? I mean, this is, I mean, there are books written about this sort of subject. Then once I decided, look, I'm going to be in America. I like certain parts of America. I like certain parts of India. And I started to solve that sort of stuff. I realized that one of the things that I really like are people. I really like people. You know, I'm afraid of dogs, but I like people. A lot of people like dogs, but not people, right? So I like people and and I started to engage people at a deeper level and I get satisfaction from that consistently and uh, that just made me a happier person and a very tolerant person and and from that you probably notice a sort of a not running so hot and also made me less entitled. Which is
2: key. <laughs> what were some of the decisions you made aside from growing your hair out? That's that stand out to you as memorable or important? Either
0: I, and it'd be interesting what David thinks about this. I actually think everybody's interesting. You just have to get it out of them. That I did not have an appreciation growing up. I clearly. You know, it was kind of like, sadly, winners, losers, that kind of thing, right? And I just, you know, I think everybody's got their own interesting story. Most people probably aren't enough self-reflective to even... um, And this is maybe judgmental that they can articulate their story, but it's there. It's just a matter of getting it out. Teasing it out. Teasing it out. And I think that's what your podcast does, essentially, from what I can tell. Yeah.
2: No, that's definitely the goal. So, David... Uh there's a there's a common expression in Silicon Valley but elsewhere it's become very widespread, which is you're the average of the five people you associate with most. You spend a lot of time with Nav. Why are you guys friends? like why do you uh continue to spend so much time <laughs> together? <laughs> I wish there were cameras here.
4: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the um yeah, I think I think it's an interesting question because I, I unlike Nav have a harder time. I I have. It takes me a while to actually like someone, and I, I'm frequently accused people of being potatoes. This is a term that we use quite a bit. Of someone It's like it's like just boring. <laughs> like if you see him come down the hallway, you run into the bathroom to get away, kind of thing. And and you know, sadly, and I, and I and I do agree with Nav. I think it's probably that's probably not a true statement. But I have less, and as you've noticed, I'm very impatient. I have less patience, and um. And and pulling that out of someone, I think what Nav and I share, and I think is also not so common amongst the interactions that we have, is we're very open, and and you could say it's sort of it's not intimate, obviously in a physical way, but intimate sort of like that you just share. Trust me, Nav, it's definitely clear with me. But just that one can be open and frank, and I think you and Peter are also, yeah, for sure. And that's an, a really great quality. I, I think so many people always have a facade, particularly people who are quite prominent. And in our world, in the science world, you know, we interact with lots of prominent people. And there's never kind of like knowing who that person is. There's always what they are rather than them. And that's why people get upset at me because I just say whatever I think, right? And Nav does that too, right? And it doesn't necessarily always make you the best friends of others, but I really appreciate that about him. The other thing I really like is that we treat each other just as two dudes do. It's not a like, what paper did you publish and what did you discover and how many people are in your lab? And this is what scientists tend to say, like, did you see that cell paper I had? Or I have 25 people. There's just a lot of that competition stuff, which maybe matters at times, but we don't have any of that between us. And that, and it's very rare that that happens. And when we talk about science, we just talk about science in like pure science, like What's interesting, what's true, what's not true, not in that kind of more, I don't know, scheming
2: way. That it's perhaps. not a jockeying. It's not a. It's definitely
4: not a jockeying. I like him for who he is. He likes me for who I am. It's not that I need something from him. He doesn't need anything from me. And a lot of times, that's not quite the case. I mean, it. You know, we also have obviously other friends, and we actually have. Uh, we actually are part of probably a group of what five or six people that end up at similar meetings throughout the world that we interact with quite nicely. But I like that kind of sort of frankness that he has. And I think he appreciates my frankness as well.
2: Well, I've, uh, I've asked some guests on this podcast. I'm not going to do it because I think the answer is really obvious, at least in this case, who do you rely on to tell you when you're wrong? (laughs) And I'm not going to say you guys tell each other when you're, wrong, when each, or the other is wrong but <laughs> just the level of bickering has been so fantastic <laughs> to observe Wait, it's non-stop what? it's great <laughs> Look, but it's but it's not a competitive if you guys were alone just the two of you you'd be having the same conversation it's not a oh, yeah, posturing yeah. or a political chess match, it's like <laughs> no. just the like, pissing contest. People call it
4: sometimes the <laughs> David and Nov show. And, <laughs> yeah, and we provide about. entertainment. We'll be at a big dinner table and no one's talking and we entertain all of them just by arguing.
2: Right? And not on, per- not on purpose. No, and, <laughs> I, and, I, and I think I said this earlier, maybe I didn't. In case I didn't, I'll just say, I remember Nov and I were talking and you said something along the lines of <laughs> uh I bet you weren't expecting us to be such dumbasses or something like that, which of course is not the case. I mean, uh, I, I feel like I've I've needed Wikipedia and Google and a glossary to to just feel able to tread water in a lot of these hear. conversations. No, yeah, no, no. That's, no. that's <laughs> how David and I feel with Peter. Uh, but but I said, you know what, I feel like I've stumbled into dumb and dumber meets limitless. And I think that's I think that's a pretty good analogy. Uh he calls me dumbass in front of other people. Like he'll
4: he'll scream across from dumbass, come over here. <laughs> you call me douchebag
2: a lot. I call you douchebag. Uh, All right, Peter. Peter has a mouthful of of nuts,
0: nuts and wants in wants, his wants to talk. Oh, no, I was used say, to
3: nuts in his mouth. I know. I, this is ridiculous. Um, you know, one thing that has been awesome this week that it's unfortunate it can't be captured in this podcast. Uh, two things. One is all the inappropriate discussions so that's just that is what it is that's the limitation of it but the other thing that i have found incredibly fun is the totally nuanced scientific discussions that have taken place in one of the most beautiful places i've ever been on this planet right so it's really cool to be sort of sitting i don't know on a cliff overlooking the pacific where you're really in the middle of nowhere and really trying to figure out if it's the ratio of NAD to NADH that matters more or the activation of AMP kinase and coming up with thought experiments. And so-
0: Are you going to fast for five days or 20 days?
3: Like, or, or I mean, what's the most important question I think we've bantered about this week has been how can you measure autophagy? How can you clinically measure autophagy or with the mTOR integrator? I mean, like- Freaking one of my favorite problems on the face of the earth. It drives me crazy, and I don't. I just think that that's kind of been the not not just the highlight of the week, but I think when you have people in your life that you can have that kind of complete discuss, You know, you can have that discussion with, and you can go, you can immediately interchange between complete and utter bullshit, and that I think that's like you've that's the holy and then it's a back and forth, Peter. You know,
4: we unfortunately meet many people who are highly intelligent, but many people want just airtime and to give a lecture. And that drives me back and forth. Nuts. We all have gone back and forth, argued, have different ideas. That That's, that's awesome, right? That's like having a non-potato relationship.
0: <laughs> Can I just elaborate just for two seconds, which means two minutes, um, <laughs> on uh, what David said? You know, it's difficult as you get older. So I think this is, definitely a function of age, but also within your own field as you sort of rise through the ranks. And I mean, it's like, you know, who do you trust that, or you feel comfortable telling you when you're off your rocker, right? And I think it's, it's important to have that. And, you know, I'll, I'll give you one quick example, which goes back to uh, this idea that low amounts of hydrogen peroxide perhaps, have benef- h 2 have beneficial effects, right? And nature has selected this idea. You know, it's a new way of thinking. But David is actually my biggest critic on this idea, right? So a lot of people, you know, say, this is kind of an interesting way, maybe explains a lot. And David says, yeah, yeah, it's very interesting. It's, you know, blah, blah, blah. However, how does it work? So in other words, Okay so you think H2O2 everybody says you put enough peroxide on cells or if they accumulate enough it can damage and the chemistry you can explain that it you know it oxidizes lots of things DNA lipids and it's bad that's an easy concept but the concept that H2O2 now has specific proteins that it acts on maybe even mTOR which david once had a paper on uh you know, how does that work mechanistically? Like, he's done beautiful mechanistic work on showing what mTOR does. How does peroxide work? And I think, you know, for that idea eventually to really take off and make a huge difference for public health is what I got to do. And nobody hits me harder than David does, who's, you know, my best friend in science, easily, right? But Privately and publicly, also a big credit, but not like. I mean, I agree with them. This is what my lab has to do over the next, you know, five years at least. That's a fair statement, right?
2: David, what? Uh, how how old are you now? Forty-eight. Forty-eight. Jesus, you do look young. I told you. Holy shit! Like people, the dude takes rapamycin.
0: I know he does secretly.
2: <laughs> so, uh, David, what advice would you give to your thirty-year-old self? And place us where you are what you're doing at the time.
4: So 30-year-old self, so
2: I... Uh, you could choose 30 or 20, 25. Yeah. It's up to you. So I did an MD-PhD at Hopkins,
4: same institution that Peter was at, although a little bit earlier than you were. And then I decided not to do clinical work. And I decided just to do research. And so I needed a job. Um, so I, but I decided to cl- go for these sort of independent positions where you could kind of get a little lab on your own. And I went to this place called the Whitehead Institute, where I am now, which is affiliated with MIT, to start a little lab there and eventually join the faculty. So I was basically when I transitioned um, to Boston, I guess, so when I was 30, it was really, really um, anxiety producing to have your own little lab just coming out of your PhD and, and frankly not really knowing what I was doing what would I have told myself? Um, I probably would have told myself, yeah, I worked like crazy. Like, I, I think it's fair to say that's the only thing that I did well. I, I probably would have tried to be a little bit more what Nav described himself as. So this is clearly at a later age than him. But I, I didn't, one thing I never thought much about and, and probably haven't even until much more recently is is the kinds of relationships one wants with people. I... I think I did those relationships in the easiest ways possible to sort of optimize my capacity to do work and do experiments, and that probably, in the long run, I think I would have wished. I wish I would have thought more about that in terms of well, what does it mean to have a good friend? What does it mean to have a girlfriend? You know, what, what is, what's your relationship with your parents? I don't think I, I don't think I ever thought about relationships in any kind of serious way other than they exist. And there's some things you get from them. Have to be but, tolerated. <laughs> <laughs> I think so, to some extent. And I don't know why that was, but, but it potato took me... Potato
0: or not potato, right? No,
4: but at that time, I don't think I gave people even the time to fall into those categories. It, anyway, it, I, I wish I had thought more about that.
2: Do you think if you'd, if you'd had that conversation with your 30-year-old self and taken the foot off the gas a little bit mm-hmm. with the work focus, do you think that would have precluded the progress or advances you made over the subsequent, say, five years? Or inhibited? Probably, yeah. I mean, I've been always a ridiculously impatient person.
4: It's my best quality. Would you have willingly made that trade-off? No, probably not. But maybe if someone had said, look, these things, if you think about them now, have an impact much later in life, maybe I would have, right? I mean, I could have done some cost-benefit analysis. But, um, But certainly back then... I would have seen things as a distraction, which is how I, I did see them. I was just really impatient and couldn't, couldn't help. I still am really impatient. I cannot stand to be in a line. I can't stand walking out of an airport with Nov. He walks so slowly. He it, it, it drives me insane. He'll be in the back of the plane. He's like a person who allows himself to be put in the back of the plane. And he's fine with it. All right. So <laughs> like our flight from Santiago, he was in the last row of the, pl- of the
0: plane. All how, by
4: myself. How too. does that happen? The beauty was there was nobody around
0: me. <laughs> and I had the whole three C's to fall asleep in. <laughs> Anyways, but
4: I think that's what I would have I would have said give more intelligent thought to relationships with people, just like you're giving to your career.
2: What about you, Nav? 30, 25, 20. Yeah, you pick so, the age. So I think uh,
0: I i think I, mine is almost the opposite right so up till the age of 22 it was all iq right no eq right emotional quotient and which is what david's talking about versus iq who and it's not about i
4: actually no, have no. a fantastic emotional point. no no i i can re- it's more about
0: my own relation right 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 but i'm what, just what do i want yeah no Thank you for clarifying that. But I'm just sort of putting them into two categories. You know, your intellectual work, work, of relationships. And I'm just sort of broadly classifying them as IQ and EQ. Just, And that's not an exact term. Um, and I think till the age of 22 is all about you know being a math guy, a, probably having some of the characteristics that David said, but for whatever reason, it didn't make me very happy. And so i probably spent those years well into my 30s working on relationships and sort of being more well-rounded but at the same time that probably came at a cost right i mean i think there is i mean david and i talk about this all the time and when he says what he just does, I push back and say, dude, that allowed you to do certain things that were incredibly insightful and important for biology, right? And in some ways, I feel like I'm just playing catch-up. Not to David, I mean, to my own self, right? I mean, I know what I have to do, right? I know the experiments, I know the questions. I I mean, I think I'm reasonably intelligent and I have good scientific taste. I know what the right questions are, but I'm kind of playing catch-up. Uh, Now, you know, can you play catch up when you're 46 years old? I don't know. Um, I hope you can. And so, you know, did I lose some time by working on myself? You know, in relationships, there's no right or wrong, right? It's the journey. I I, I mean, if I had to do it again, would I still do it the same way? Yeah, right? No regrets. You can't. You can't. You know, it is what it is. So there's no right, I mean, I think that's one of the reasons why we get along so well, because today we probably have a similar view of what we want going forward, right? We've arrived at the same place in many ways, but from completely different approaches based on a variety of factors. Is that a fair statement? Yeah,
2: for sure. What, uh, Nav, would you view as the best or one of the best Investments you've ever made. And by that, I don't necessarily mean stock investment or something like that. It could be an investment of money, time, energy that was kind of speculative at the time, right? So, for instance, a guest on this podcast, uh, Amelia Boone, was uh, on the law track and invested $450 in her first entrance fee for something called World's Toughest Mudder, which is an obstacle racing competition. And now she's the best female obstacle course racer in the world. So it opened up a million doors, but at the time, $450 was a big stretch. Uh, does anything come to mind? Oh, yeah.
0: So I have a, a dirty little secret. You said the four-hour work week, and I joked that you know I invented that. And I've been teasing um, our good friend Peter about how efficient he is. My best quality by far is how efficient I am. Um, in a week, I go through a schedule of you know, running my lap, traveling, being with the wife, being with the kids, is going to rooftop with friends, playing soccer. Or, I mean, I do a lot of, lot of stuff i doing things for the university, for the scientific community. It's just not only one thing. I do like 10 different things. It's all in a meaningful way. And the reason I do it is because I have a very strict, regimented, mental, thanks to the uh, the calendar as well on the iPhone, and where everything is accounted for, right? I have a huge list of things I want to get through in a week, and it's all accounted for mentally in this. And I, you know, it's it's, I, and I still get reasonable amount of sleep, usually about seven hours. Or I and I and I purposely became efficient in graduate school because I saw so most people in grad, including some of my own graduates, I don't understand why they come in at ten o'clock. I really don't get it. So in graduate school, I realized I love soccer and I want to play soccer every day. That was around six o'clock our games. I got in as a graduate student, which is unheard of by seven or 7.30. And I used to party way late in the night. It didn't matter. Yeah, I will always get in and, and I just cranked, right? I didn't want to work 15 hours, come in at 10, stay till three and brag about how I stayed till three. Well, you, you started at 10, by 11.30, you were already at lunch. At one, you finally set up. You yeah, know, it wasn't very efficient. For me, come in at 7.30, just crank through. Usually by 6, I would be done on most days. As I think you were talking about a very smart graduate student that you have currently, who seems to be very efficient by, and who's very successful, who's been able to do amazing work, but he's very efficient about how he likes to go about many things he does uh, within the lab and outside the lab. And I think, but for me, it was a, con- again, I spent 12 years from the age of 10 and 22 sitting in a library doing math 18 hours a day and watching the world go by me, right? So my reaction was, wait a second, I can spend 18 hours and get nowhere. Maybe I should do the George Costanza movie. Maybe I should just work for nine hours, my, my butt off. That way I have enough time to go play soccer, go watch the great Michael Jordan and the Bulls every night on TV on the in the pub. You know what I'm saying? And so I got very good until this day even when I'm at meetings things I as David knows we have night I, you know I plan out dinners I still I've I actually organize many meetings but at the same time I find time to have dinner with friends and stay out late you know be social get up in the morning still give a talk ask questions you know it's it's a conscious choice of living what
2: are, and being efficient what are some of the biggest differences between or what are some of the most common mistakes that inefficient People make in your mind? And that could be people in general, or it could be people sort of within your field? For me, it's very easy. When do you
0: give 110%? <laughs> and when it's just good enough.
2: So for you, what how do you think about that? When I have to give a talk, it's 110%. It's
0: about 25 minutes usually, right? Sometimes 45 minutes, right? It, it, it's an insult to Maybe the Comic Sans is an insult, but at least the data is insulting if it's not presented in a manner uh, for the 50 or 500 people that are listening. Right? It's, it's, it's insulting that you're just going to get up there and bumble your way through. you got to give. But there's a lot of stuff that we're dragged into hmm, where people, as David said earlier, just like to talk all the time about whatever. They schedule a meeting for two hours, they want you to be there. I'm like, we can do this in 30 minutes. I know we can. Why are we here for two hours, right? That's inefficiency. So I'm very clear about this is what I bring to the table. Well, if you think this is a benefit, again, mutual benefit. If you think this is a benefit because this is all I'm going to give you, because I don't think you need more than that, take it or leave it. And I'm at a position where I can do that. But most people, you know, they think, by spending more time in, in anything, like, it makes it better. Yeah. I mean, that's just crazy.
2: It's just not the case.
0: It's just not the case.
2: Yeah. There's something, there's something called the mythical man month in uh, the world's software development, where they say if you have a software project that is behind schedule, if you double the number of people working on it, you effectively double the delay it actually makes it take longer. Right.
0: And so, believe it or not, as a kid, I worked my butt off much more harder than this because my father said nobody died from working hard. That was our motto. Well, You look back. That's really bad advice. Okay. <laughs> I mean, yes, you want to work hard, but I mean, you know, people do die from working too hard. Uh, let's be honest. And so, you know, it's more about working efficiently. So, I teach my daughter constantly how to prioritize what's important, especially as kids, they think everything's important, right?
2: Are there any particular questions that you ask your daughter to help her prioritize? Or how do you how do you instill that?
0: Oh, for me it's really easy. I mean, does this have to do with confidence, ability to write, causality, correlate right? It comes down to the again the, the same sort of the principles. Pillars. Yeah. Right. So for me, like being good at math is really important. Maybe that's just me. Uh, Being good in our history and writing classes is good. Some other classes, you know, I mean, these days they give you so much homework. You know, they have some crazy, touchy-feely classes about uh, visual this or whatever. I'm like, you know, kid, if you got to it, you got to it. It's not a big deal, right? You don't have to be A at everything. But there's a few things. It's not even being A. Do you really understand, you know, geometry? Do you really understand? uh, how to construct what David was saying sentences you know my wife luckily is very good in English she has a romance languages and literature major originally and uh, so she's very good at helping her construct and find her voice as a writer right so I mean you know you try to work on the real stuff
2: David in uh, terms of your best investment or best investments that come to mind I mean, you could really think about them as decisions, allocations of time or resources. Yeah.
4: Yeah. I was. No, I was thinking as no, I was talking. I, I guess I've never really thought them as investments, but, but but certainly the best decision I did was not pursue clinical medicine. I, I, what is clinical medicine? Well, do you know, be a doctor and see patients and uh, work in a hospital. I mean, that when I when I was an MD PhD student and I finished my PhD, and this was after the mTOR work, and I. You know, was confident I had done something that mattered. And I went back to the hospital. You know there was a lot of pressure to continue in that uh, in that world. My my parents, my my mother in particular, and and in general, it was it was nowadays. I've had several students, uh, several MD PhD students of my own, not pursue medicine. But at the time, it was actually not as common. And um, and not doing that and staying just with the research side, even though. My mom said, you know, you're going to starve. You're not going to have money. You're not, not going to have food. You know, mothers worry about those things. She, she. I think she had very low expectations because she said, if you do an MD, if you finish your, do your residency, you do an internship, at least you can go to some small town in the South and they'll take you as a doctor.
2: <laughs> twin <laughs> so. twin Beaks style. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> right. But that
4: was probably the best decision I made and it was one of the hardest ones. Was How a lot did of, you make
2: that decision? I mean, you had your... <laughs> family on some level, doubting the decision. Mm-hmm. How did you come to make the decision? What you was... know it was, uh, I, I think it, 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 it was pretty simple actually. When
4: I went back to the hospital and you, know, you, you have to do what I call rotations, right? You do different services, you do medicine, surgery, OBGYN. I just, I found myself when I was talking to patients or reviewing their cases, thinking about, my own scientific work. And I thought that that was really wrong, right? It's one thing to be a bad scientist, which there are many, but to kind of be a bad doctor, not really care, is really bad, right? It's really terrible. And I realized I was going to be a bad doctor. I was not thinking about this person. I was thinking, how soon could I get back to my lab bench and do an experiment? And that's just bad. And I, I you know, I, did, I definitely avoided certain work as a as a medical student that I should not have avoided. So that was it, right? Is I think you know, right? It's like whether you like someone or you don't like someone, it's 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 you really do know that feeling and you just have to sort of convince yourself. And here it wasn't that hard because it was sort of unethical to yeah. be interacting with a patient and not giving my 100%.
2: I mean, it's in a way fortunate that that moral conundrum existed, right? Because it assisted in the decision. It, it assisted tremendously
4: my advisor, Saul Snyder, also was like, Look, David, yeah, those people used to also make the argument if you do the clinical stuff, you'll get paid more. It's a very common argument because MDs make more than, than PhDs. And I remember him telling us, like, ah, don't pay attention to that. That's, you know, it countered my mother's kind of argument. Um, but it was really that I was treating patients without giving the full attention of my mind. And that seemed fundamentally wrong.
0: You know, um, I forgot to tell you, one of the reasons I was also unhappy was that as an Indian male, uh, I I was thinking about your mother, they wanted me to be a doctor, right? So I was doing math, but and I took all like physics and math and all this hard stuff, which you don't get very good grades in, and eventually I started like biology, oh good, you're going to become a doctor. (laughs) So I actually, I don't know if you even know this, David, you know how many times I applied to medical school? Three 20. times over a span of 2022, 20, and after even my PhD, you know, the guy who now heads Sloan Kettering Memorial Hospital, arguably one of the two best cancer hospitals in the world, a very famous scientist, physician, and a mentor, a good friend, both of David. And I, we see him all the time, Craig Thompson. And he even went straight after the PhD to uh, To the dean and with my dossier, and he and you know this was like right after the OJ thing, because you know now if you're like OJ Simpson, <laughs> and you, you know you have to have a hail mary to get away with this, because you know they care about grades, right? And so I didn't have great grades because I did math and physics and all this stuff, right? Just for learning, and and so I didn't get in even the third time, right? So I tried and and maybe. It was a good thing, right? blessing was, in
2: disguise. A
0: blessing in the sky. So that was part of the other failure.
2: Well, it comes back to not fearing failure, right? Right, sort of conditioning yourself against that. So, so Peter, I want to pass the mic to you because I think we have a uh, maybe a good ending story as we start to wrap this up. So I'm going to pass the mic.
3: Yeah. So it's kind of hard to believe. It is what in 24 hours we're going to be out of here, right? That's right. No. sort of a bummer this week has gone by fast um i think um the only regret i have was that uh ajai wasn't here i think uh who's who's seren's son um and yeah, actually you yeah so so seren was the uh gentleman who did you know the majority of the work on identifying what it was in the soil um that they, that they, that they found here at, uh, at Easter Island in 1964, that, uh, it was so special. It was this, uh, you know, bacteria purified it. It was rapamycin. And I, I, you know, one of the more interesting stories, so first of all, it's kind of interesting how I met, uh, or got connected to his son, which was, I was on another podcast telling us a little bit, discussing a little bit about rapamycin and mentioned that I knew that Soren was dead, but that his son was still alive. And I wished I could connect with him somehow. Somebody heard the podcast who knew him, told him, and he connected with me through LinkedIn. And then that's when I got telling him about this trip. And um, he he made a pretty big effort to come. Um, He told me some interesting stories that I think one is worth sort of closing with, because it brings back to this question that, you know, frankly, is front and center on my mind, um, which is, when can I start taking rapamycin? How much should I dose it? How often should I take it? Because I'm not sure I want to wait until 20 years from now um, to know the answer to that question. And so so in, in the late 90s, uh, Seren presented with metastatic colon cancer. So that's a pretty unfortunate presentation. That means that you're not only diagnosed with colon cancer, but at the time of diagnosis, the uh, cancer has already spread to the liver, completely to the liver, which is the first place it usually spreads. And so at that point in life, uh, pardon me, at that stage of a diagnosis, your life expectancy is really short. It's, um, again, it's hard to know exactly because I didn't see the x-rays, but you know, it could be six months, it could be a year, but it's not a long life expectancy once you have that. And he decided to start taking rapamycin. Now this was even before rapamycin was approved. RAPA was approved in 1999 by the FDA, but again, for this very specific indication around kidney transplants, but he started taking it because of course he had a reasonable supply of it. Um, and he took it for about three or four years. Um, and during that period of time, none of the tumors grew, none of them shrunk, but none of them grew. He was in completely uh, stable situation. And he, uh, this is all according to his son who told me this story that, you know, he Decided he was never going to know if rapamycin really worked unless he stopped it. So he stopped it, and sure enough, as soon as he did, the tumors basically exploded throughout his body, and within three months he was dead. Um, he told his son on his deathbed that you know he sort of regretted this, and it was the biggest mistake he ever made was not taking it. And so I think it was like maybe ten days ago, I emailed Ajay, and I was like do you remember what dose of rapamycin your dad was taking? And he's like, I don't, but I bet my mom will know. And he emails me back an hour later and I forwarded you this email and I forwarded to you as well, David. He said, I can do one better than that, Peter. The um, she, My mom still has some of it in the freezer. And he sent me the photograph of the prescription because by the time he was at the end of his life, it was already post 2000. And so this drug was already in the market and churn sure up. You have the little, you know, it was like a Safeway or Vaughn's pharmacy thing and it's got his name on it and it's rapamycin and it was one milligram per day. And so, um, you know, I think that, the so, so to me, this kind of, this, 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 this week has been unbelievable. Um, I think the thing that's sort of funny this week by about is like finding out that that plaque is gone. You know, the, one of the first things David said to me when we, Plan this trip was we can't wait to see this plaque. There's a very famous plaque that is sitting on a stone at the outside of the crater where they found the bacteria. And uh, what the morning we were going to go, we were like, oh, we were like, there's some good news and bad news. The good news is we now know where the plaque is. The bad news is it because right, st- online you couldn't find That's where right. it was. It was just a picture, <laughs> just a picture of it, and you couldn't remember where it is. And if, the bad news is it was stolen in 2011. So we went and saw the rock that once held the plaque and um and you can see where it was but yeah, yeah you can see flag. yeah it's uh so anyway i think our hope is that uh, and we're trying to figure out what the right way to do this is but is to sort of collectively put the put that plaque together send it back to the folks here and have them put it back up uh, and maybe add something to it because it, the plaque was already um you know obviously a tribute to this but i think there's there's uh there's probably a bit more that could be said
2: so just to wrap up and I loved getting that email. And that my, do you remember my response? Two thousand yeah. question mark exclamation point exclamation point. Uh, so, just in closing, uh, I'd love for people to know where they can find you guys, if they can find you guys. <laughs> and you are hard to find, as it turns out, because you're not on social media, except for it would seem a potential Twitter account. We'll come back to that. We'll see. I think it was a joke account. If you can recall the joke account that was made that may at some point be active, that was the account we made. I, I'm at, in a meeting as a joke, a
4: friend of mine made an mTORman man Twitter handle and started just tweeting nonsense, uh, which a lot of was erased because it was sort of making fun of some of the people at the meeting, and they asked me to erase part of it.:
2: <laughs> All right, so uh, so, so you, you may be able to find, and I'll try to correct this: but in the old show people notes. like us use email, right?) <laughs> <laughs> at mtor you probably don't want to give out your email address on no. this podcast but our email addresses are trivial there find. are other people who have yeah, done that <laughs> exactly <I'm> just... <laughs> so like... so yeah all right so you can find their email addresses uh but but let's uh, so let's start with that actually uh david so people may or may not be able to find at mtor on twitter i think it still exists because i keep getting like people keep asking me whether to follow me even though there's nothing been put on it in years, but okay, all right. So, so some people may be able to reach out through that avenue. Otherwise, is there a particular website or otherwise where people can learn more about your lab? Yeah, I mean, if one just searches my name
4: and puts David Sabatini White, Lab Whitehead Institute, they'll find the website Whitehead. exactly. Yeah, or I think if you put Sabatini Lab, it probably goes to that.
2: And uh, Enough? same thing.
0: Same me. thing. We just put.
2: You know, what should they search? My name, Navdeep
0: Chandel, and it'll pop up, Northwestern University.
2: Navdeep, N-A-V-D-E-E-P, last name C-H-A-N-D-A-L. D-E-L. D-E-L. There we go. But I think
0: Google will fix that very quickly. He's good at
2: that. We'll sort it
4: out. (laughs) Yeah. yeah. His his name is pretty unique, actually. There's not other people. Is that right?
2: And uh, last question is, do you have any asks, suggestions, or recommendations for those people? Listening, any requests uh, that you would like to put out to those people who are listening to this podcast? Anything whatsoever, really? <laughs> it's well, I think really you know, a shame we do another video
4: here. <laughs> I mean, something that Peter and I have talked about is I I do think there's going to have to be a new era of sort of molecular nutrition where one understands nutrients at a much deeper molecular level in, a, in an integrated way. And it's clear they have a major impact on our physiology, and a lot of this we've known for a long period of time. But how they all combine to affect many different systems over long periods of time under different situations, a lot of that is really unknown. And, and it's not really clear how we're ever going to know it, because a lot of studies would have to be done in people. I think it's worth starting to think about that. You know, Many places dismantled their nutrition departments. MIT used to have a nutrition department. In fact, when I first arrived, it still existed they were actually good or bad responsible for a lot of the food pigment, uh, pyramid places dismantled their physiology departments. You know, those are things that, um, I think we have to start thinking about. We, we've done so much at this sort of deep molecular biochemical level, going back and integrating this in a integrative fashion, I think is going to
2: be interesting. That's what I would say. Nav, any closing thoughts?
0: Yeah, I think, um, I concur with David, uh, one of the things um, that does perturb me sometimes for an even keel kind of guy is that everybody's an expert on diet and nutrition and metabolism. It's amazing to me, right? When, when people talk about genes and genetic information, and I'm talking about the larger public, people sort of go, well, I'm not quite sure how genes and DNA, RNA, I don't even understand that. But when it comes to metabolism, diet, nutrition, all of this stuff, everybody is the world's expert on. And you know, it's as complicated as learning about genetics, and uh, and it takes a long time to figure out uh, at a deep level what metabolism means, how it works. And like David said, diet and nutrition, I mean, I, I don't know much about it because I think the, it's in its infancy. It needs really a revamp. Um, but, and so I would just tell the general public to treat the world of diet, nutrition, and metabolism, perhaps with the same sort of respect that they have for genetics, and not try to just you know tweet out stuff that, that they may think, think uh, based on anecdotal evidence is, uh, is true, you know, correlation with causality. Skepticism,
2: right? I mean. And have
0: skepticism and have the same scientific rigor. And I think uh, one of the things that I've enjoyed talking with Peter uh, and yourself is that you guys do sort of think about this from a very, you know, you use the, 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 the classic scientific method, and, uh, and trying to decipher what metabolism and diet and nutrition really mean. But I think most people just don't. They think we're world's experts on it. And I'm like, you know, spend a whole life, lifetime doing this stuff and still feel like I'm in the dark.
2: Right. You're entitled to your own opinions, but not your own facts. <laughs> facts well stated. Fact. <laughs> Peter, any uh, final parting thoughts or any questions you'd like to pose to the universe slash my listeners?
3: Well, I mean, a lot of what we talked about this week, we didn't get to, because I think it's probably more technical, but I mean, I think the really interesting stuff here is, um, and it kind of actually gets to what Nav's point is, right? I mean, one of the things that keeps me, I maybe mean, keeps me up at night is too strong a statement, but it's what certainly, um, frustrates me is that we don't have a great way to evaluate, for example, different protocols that are used to, um, mimic caloric restriction, right? So called intermittent fasting. Um, and we can all agree on why that would be beneficial, probably something to do with autophagy. We don't know how to measure that, right? We can measure it at a point in time, maybe do a muscle biopsy. But you know, to me, one of the most exciting things we talked about this week was what would it take to put together even a small N of one or N of five experiment where we sort of shotgun this thing and look at what are the metabolic signatures of autophagy that can then allow us to have a tool to evaluate dietary strategies that go beyond hard outcomes, right? Because hard outcomes mean you got to do studies for 20 years, look for people who live, die longer. Those things just aren't going to happen. So we, we kind of, we, I think we need to come up with a new way to think through this problem. Um, and I don't know that I have an ask at the moment, but I know I'm going to.
2: Peter, where can people find you?
3: Nowhere. <laughs> that's not true. Kazakhstan. Mean, <laughs> that's right. <laughs> I'm in Kazakhstan. Um, yeah, I mean, I have a Twitter handle that I use occasionally, and I blog once or twice a year. That's extremely nebulous.
2: <laughs> Any further instructions? Eating Academy?
3: Yeah, just Google my name and you'll find some.
2: <laughs> okay. Peter Tia, ladies and gentlemen, uh, thank you all very much for the time, guys. And uh, to everybody listening, there'll be show notes, links to everything that we discussed at four hour workweek all spelled out.com forward slash podcast. And as always, and until next time, thank you for listening, signing off from Easter Island. check it out. Just go to fourhourworkweek.com. That's fourhourworkweek.com all spelled out and just drop in your email and you will get the very next one. And if you sign up, I hope you enjoy it.